Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number six of the Papercast with me, Dominic Hill. My guest today is Jack Eggington. Did I get that right? Yep, that is Nice, correct. easy name today. <laughs> um, and we are going to be talking about his PhD project, which is just started. Yeah, just started. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your, uh, your project? Just maybe give us the title and we can go from there. Yeah, sure. Uh, so the running title at the moment is Health, Diet and Social Inequality in Industrial England, um, a Mother-Infant Perspective. Um, and essentially, I'm very interested in diet and health during the kind of industrial period. So kind of 1750 onwards, really, to all the way up to kind of 1900. Um, and yeah, that's essentially the kind of gist of it, I suppose. So how did you get into this? What were you doing before you came here? Um, so before I came here, I was, I was doing a master's um, in York um, in bioarch, kind of similar stuff, actually, looking at kind of childhood health i was looking more broadly actually looking at kind of skeletal stress diet looking at infectious disease looking at kind of everything really of the industrial kind of period but i didn't have any kind of um practical analysis involved in that because it was during covid it was like 20 2019 2020 right um so it was yeah <coughs> so that was um that was my kind of initial experience and then kind of prior to that i just had general kind of for my undergrad, I did bioarch and I did a, something completely different. To be fair, um, not related to the industrial revolution. What I, was that? It was um, it was a it was a rare spinal. Well, it's actually not rare. It's fairly common, but a spinal pathology called um, Schmall's nose. Really, <laughs> Schmall's nose. Schmall's nose. Yeah. Um, it's it's really it's yeah. It was it was fairly interesting. I was basically looking at the relationship between spinal pathology and like body mass. Oh, okay. in, in in skeletons essentially right. I, was, I was i was using like all sorts of regression equations to calculate or estimate i should say um body mass of individuals in life um and then looking at the prevalence of a specific spinal pathology in relation to that and then how far down the spine you kind of get the pathology essentially stuff like that um oh wow that's really interesting so yeah it was, it was actually very interesting um um yeah i mean i didn't have the kind of quantity of data that i wanted but it was kind of interesting i imagine archaeologists always feel like that though yeah yeah i mean you know there's only so many skeletons you can have. there's not like thousands and thousands out there i mean ideally you'd have like ten thousand skeletons wouldn't you but i mean it's not it's not really the it's a lot of digging yeah a lot of digging <laughs> indeed um but yeah that's really interesting so what did you find um with that one it was quite interesting so i actually also looked at stature um and what was interesting is the um the pathology was correlated with um, taller individuals. So essentially, the taller the individual, um, the more likely to have the pathology. I think um, so an increase in prevalence was was correlated with um, increase in stature, essentially. Yeah. Um, which is true for most things, I think. Yeah, which is true for most things, um, which was interesting. And that was statistically significant, um, which was surprising because of how small the, <laughs> the data was. I think I looked at 40 46 skeletons and from what sort of time period were those skeletons they were mixed so there was basically two populations there's one i think i like 25 from um a monastic cemetery so um 12th century i think and then i had some roman individuals um uh that were from a town um baldock which i'm not sure where baldock is i think it's it's in the south somewhere um but um yeah, and I, th I suppose the interesting part of it was as well as looking at the different um, differences between the populations, because obviously there's a lot of different lifestyles as well when it comes to kind of a monastic population to kind of an active town population. Um, 
so yeah, that was interesting. There was no correlation, unfortunately, between um, or no statistical significant correlation between um, actual body mass and Schwarz nodes. So you know that's still up in the air whether that's um, whether there exists um, a relationship between obesity and um, that's a relief because my BMI is very high. Yeah, <laughs> although there's a lot of clinical evidence that is starting to maybe support that, which is interesting. But obviously, we're talking like big studies. Because um, the interesting thing about Schmalz nose is actually it's still like obviously relevant today. Um, you still get some clinical studies that look at it. What um, is it? It's just basically it's um it's a it's a like so on on the on on the like superior so the top of the vertebra or bottom of the vertebra uh, so the inferior um, surfaces so superior and inver- inferior surfaces sorry you get um it's basically um this depression so it's right. basically um where the bone has kind of been um, destroyed. Um, it's um, essentially caused by... Um, yeah, it's, it's caused by a depression that's... Uh, let, me sit, let me think. Yeah, it's basically when the cartilage, the cartilaginous end plate like essentially herniates... Uh, sorry, it's a herniation of the cartilaginous end, cartilaginous end plate, I should say, um, into the actual bone. Right. So then it causes okay. like... Um, it causes depression in the bone where essentially the bone has kind of been destroyed, destroyed. Obviously you get kind of necrotic bone and mm-hmm. then, um, you'll get this depression and then often you get like remodeling of the bone because obviously it kind of heals. Um, and often it's associated with kind of trauma, um, and high axial loading. Essentially you get a lot of, um, you get a lot of this kind of pathology in kind of individuals that have probably done a lot of manual labor mm-hmm. or, you know, been, exposed to like there's an interesting study with like kind of alpine skiers had a lot of schmalls nodes because of the kind of like forces yeah, the impacts that are, going are placed up, yeah. on the spine um but yeah so i just basically wanted to see whether obesity kind of like throw that in the mix yeah a factor yeah um it makes sense yeah yeah because you've got more weight going yeah, through exactly. the spine yeah um so. i wonder if uh rugby players might be a good place to start if you're looking for yeah, that yeah 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 <laughs> slightly no. worrying but yeah um, no they got both maybe in some, in some yeah places, maybe if the you look at and yeah impact you look at some props especially where they are just taking loads on their yeah, shoulders yeah a lot of just constantly yeah going through the body yeah <laughs> uh, you, you if you ever wanted to do that study that would probably be possible um because a lot of rugby teams are quite into that sort of stuff my, i did my um master's dissertation on vitamin d status in professional rugby players oh really That's um, interesting. Uh, harlequins yeah i never got to go and meet anyone i just got some yeah data which was slightly upsetting um but they were sort of really keen to look at nutritional markers and I'm sure they would be keen to look at, yeah. you know, other states uh, or other indicators of sort of general health. And yeah, it sounds like that, that might be something that could affect them. Um, so that then presumably just leads to a sort of degeneration of the bone or remodeling of the bone. Yeah. Um, pain, es- I guess. Es- essentially, th- no, this is the thing as well. Why it's not particularly cared about clinically is often it's asymptomatic. Right. Um, so you don't really have that many problems with it but there is some cases um clinical cases where it's been very severe back pain um that has been associated with um a schmall's node essentially um but yeah it's it's interesting looking in the past because you can determine like you know you can start interpreting like kind of lifestyle occupation maybe stuff like that um yeah i suppose which must be very useful for an archaeologist which is useful for an archaeologist yeah um Clinically, it's not cared about so yeah. much, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that makes sense. Um, yeah, 
So so essentially it's 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 more of a tool to understand, you know, what a, a person did when yeah. they were alive however many years ago. Yeah, yeah. So that was your undergrad. Yeah. And was that at York as well? That was at York. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. you stayed at York for your masters, masters yeah. which you then shifted from looking at yeah. Romans and monks from the 12th century yeah, yeah. to <laughs> industri- industrialized yeah. societies in presumably the UK. Yeah, England. presumably the UK. So yeah. I, I looked at I looked at 13 different cemetery populations mm-hmm. and this was just data now, um, unfortunately. But I looked at the data. For you weren't robbing any graves. No, I wasn't robbing any graves. Um, in the middle of lockdown. Um, <laughs> no, what a terrifying sight that would have been, yeah, like yeah. especially at the beginning of the pandemic when people didn't really know what was going on. There's you out there yeah. in the cemetery with a spade. Yeah, it would have been yeah controversial. To say the least. <laughs> um, but yeah, I looked at 13 different cemetery populations, um, and I looked at six from London and seven from the north of England, and um, I essentially looked at everything really, everything you could look at, any kind of skeletal marker um for kind of diet um and health really i i focus specifically on kind of um uh like skeletal stress in in general is what i kind of I kind of termed it so i looked at um um something called cribber orbitale which is an indicator of um usually anemia iron deficient anemia okay. but it has been associated with also kind of megablastic anemia so i think that's vitamin b12 deficiency um so I looked at that, and that's basically you get this kind of porosity um, in the eye orbits. Okay. That's associated with um, essentially. Um, I don't exactly know the exact science of this because, to be honest, I didn't go into that much detail with it. But um, it it must be associated with kind of. I think it's it's, it's something to do with the marrow. I think. Right. Um, um, iron deficiency in the, the marrow, and then obviously destruction of bone. Um, which obviously forms the kind of porosity, you get the porosity um, in the eye orbits. Um, and um, I also looked at, um, I also looked at rickets, so mm-hmm. a bit of a classic one, yep. vitamin D deficiency, vitamin D. Um, scurvy, vitamin C deficiency. That's um, a nasty one, you don't want nasty scurvy. One. No, no, yeah. very nasty. Will your teeth fall out. Um, no, it's not nice at all. Um, and I also looked at um, tuberculosis as well. And then a few other things, I looked at kind of stature as well. Um, as an indicator of health and kind of growth and stuff like that. Um, I looked at non-adults and adults. Um, so in, in the end, it was like a very, um, it was very broad, to be honest with you, which was kind of annoying. Um, but, and I was relying on data that had been collected, some of it from like the 1980s. So yeah. it's like not necessarily that reliable, mm-hmm. but um, it was interesting. I, in the end, I think, you know, I, the data, you know, it amounts to like 1,500 individuals or maybe more actually, maybe it's near to 2,000 in the end. Um, so there's quite a lot of um, individuals that I'm looking at, but it is, as I said, it's a broad set yeah. of data. So it's... That is, I think, if anyone's listening and they're thinking about doing a master's, yeah, that does seem, seem to be what happens is you go and they sort of sell you on the idea that you're going to do your own project at the end and it's going to be mm. a big dissertation. It's going to be great. And then they give you a data set and that's mm. all you get and yeah I, I know that's not true for everyone but it was certain certainly my experience and it sounds like it was yours as well yeah, yeah. um and then you write up a paper and you get criticized for the data collection and you go well i had nothing to do with this yeah, yeah. like for mine it was all rugby players and we were looking at vitamin d status and bone density and um i was like well is this the right method to measure vitamin d in these in this sample yeah, well yeah. maybe not but <laughs> 
yeah, had nothing yeah. to do with that. Um, yeah. So it can be a little bit frustrating, but um, at least you had a large data set, which does help because yeah. you can look for more nuance in a, in a yeah, large data yeah. set. Did you find any interesting differences there? I um, imagine there must be some difference between north and south. Yeah, no, that was that was one difference. I wasn't initially really looking at north-south. I was actually looking specifically at social status. Um, so what's quite interesting about a lot of industrial post-medieval um, cemeteries is they have quite distinct social status. Right. Status is within the cemetery itself. Okay. So people are buried in particular areas depending on their social status. Oh, right. I didn't know um, that. that can often be determined. Um, but also because there's some re- record of baptism, stuff like that, there's a there's a, a certain knowledge of how much people are paying for them. And you can kind of al- you can align people into different social statuses based off that, the kind of documentary evidence. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so essentially I had I had populations that were essentially low, middle and of high social status. Obviously not that exact obviously there was different within that there was obviously differences but um yeah it was interesting to see the differences between social statuses um looking at kind of mortality um so obviously like higher for like the classic thing is obviously a higher social status will have a lower infant mortality maybe um and um you know lower social status will have a higher infant mortality and that i did see that to be fair that was actually statistically significant um but um, yeah, there was there was some interesting differences between north and south. Off the top of my head, I think it was interesting that health was just generally very bad in both. To be honest, right. here. yeah, um, in in both populations, uh, in both low states in particular, um, but also high states, which is quite interesting, um, was poor as well. Um, dietary, were like vitamin D deficiency, was was abysmal in in the north. Um, right. Well, that makes which, sense. Which which makes yeah. sense. Um, for people that don't yeah, know, yeah. that's because it's harder to generate vitamin D the further yeah. away from the equator you go because yeah, the yeah. sun is lower in the sky, it's less intense, and yeah. it doesn't get through your skin to make vitamin D. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was to be expected. Um, and then scurvy was particularly was particularly bad in certain populations. Um, obviously, the annoying thing is I couldn't get into the exact reasons why in some populations because obviously it's quite a broad study. I'm looking at 13 cemeteries. I can't kind of go into the details of it in in to some degree um but yeah no it, it was a good study overall um oh one actually thing that was interesting with the with the north south thing is is the stature right um, okay in london weirdly um the men were just so much shorter really like re- really um like significantly shorter and that was that was um you know even without looking at different social groups like you know the high status men in London was significantly shorter than the low status men in the north. That's very interesting. Which was interesting. I was trying to work out why this was, and there was all, all sorts of like things uh, I thought of. I mean, yeah, I couldn't really <laughs> explain it in the end, but that was determined to be statistically significant. That's really interesting. Um, I wonder why that would have been. And I, I did a little kind of further um, look at a few different populations, other po- populations people have looked at, and it does seem the case that a lot of London populations are significantly shorter than other populations in the north or, or the midlands for that period i don't really mm. particularly know it's fascinating exactly why do you um, remember sort of roughly what the average heights were in the i think different populations i think it's something like so it's in centimeters um i, I can do it by kind of status i think i think mm-hmm. you know we're talking about like i think the middle weirdly the middle status in the north i think had were, were some of the tallest individuals which oh, was really? quite interesting um like on average, like 172 centimeters. So not talking like really. Tall. Still, yeah, not but tall. like, um, 
but like for example on average the ho- everyone in london was below 170 wow on average so that's what that must be five eight yeah it's not i i was always working out in the centimeters because <laughs> that's how we like measure the stature yeah yeah of um, course. or estimated stature but um it's just yeah. a really annoying place in this country where half the people know their height in centimeters yeah, yeah. And half <laughs> know in feet and inches it's not particularly it's not particularly tall either way <laughs> but, yeah. but um um yeah no i just thought it was interesting and i was trying to work out whether it was genetic or whether it was kind of like a combination of factors is it genetic and, and some kind of environmental factors as well um but I, to this day i don't really know why i mean someone need, someone needs to maybe investigate that in more detail yeah um, i mean you'd assume it was related to nutrition wouldn't you if, yeah but um i don't know how you would assess that um yeah i'd, I'd assume diet in, in very early life but um then having a kind of knock-on effect on obviously that early growth. And then obviously if they have poor diet then throughout childhood, then it's just... Yeah, um, still a big problem around the world, stunting. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. Because I, I don't know if I actually said, but my my master's was human nutrition. Mm. Um, so we learned a lot about that today rather than, you know, in the UK back in time. Yeah. Um, it's interesting how other places seem to be... Places that are industrialising are having similar problems as we had when we industrialized yeah. 200 years ago or whenever it was. Yeah, no, it's, it is interesting. Um, I, yeah, I read, a, I read a paper about that recently, actually, about like kind of um, they almost go through the exact same things as the, the Industrial Revolution. I mean, it, it, was a, it was about how we need to avoid it. Right. Obviously, the Industrial Revolution is a perfect example of what you don't want to do is obviously you get, um, you know, you get all this industrialization, loads of money's coming into the, into the country, you know, the economy's booming, but you've still got, these individuals that are extremely poor living in poverty that um, are suffering. Um, and that's still the vast majority of the population. And it's only until you get kind of like increased, increased investiture in kind of public health, mm-hmm. which happens a lot later in the industrial revolution that you start to see improvements in health, um, which I think, you know, it, it doesn't have to be that way though. Yeah. Like you can that's just invest That's sort of the organic early. way, but do you, you know what I mean, you can yeah. invest early. People don't want to do it because it's obviously, you know, um, mm. If if you're wealthy or if you're government, you want you want the money to keep coming in. You don't want to like siphon it off into you know health and public health, which is obviously important. But you know, if you do that all at the same time, you can grow maybe slower, but kind of um, better, better, yeah, yeah. <laughs> more healthily, yeah, more healthily, presumably more sustainably as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So you you were doing that, and then you finished mm. in 2020. I guess. So I finished in, uh, yeah, autumn 2020. Yep. And then you come straight here? No, no I actually. Kind of done. So I took, um, so I hadn't actually applied for a PhD yet. Right. Um, I was just kind of focusing on my master's, like finishing mm. that. Um, and also I really didn't want to do it in the middle of COVID. I was like, I, was like, I don't want to start um, a yeah, PhD. Yeah, that was a very good call. And, and just be like, not be able to meet anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just think that would have been, have been a disaster for me. But, um, so I was like, oh, I'll I'll do a bit of work. I'll work. Um, I'll work, and then I'll write my kind of proposal because I didn't really even have an idea for a kind of proposal. Um, so I went around like a few different universities, like kind of emailing them, seeing what kind of collections, like, because um, I knew I wanted to do something with the industrial revolution. Um, so I emailed around a few universities, see what collections they kind of had. Because it's not really advertised. No one really knows who's got what bones. It's like <laughs> it's it's like a bit. Um, I know they exist out there, but I'm not sure where they are. So I emailed a few around um, 
I looked at a few other universities outside the UK as well. McMaster is one I was in Canada. I was looking at. Right. Um, and um, yeah, and eventually yet you I went, chose Reading. Yeah, and yeah, I chose Reading. Um, I, I, was, I was even like, I was looking at Cambridge, Oxford, all these like big, big boy universities. But um, in the end, it was just came down to the fact that Reading had the the population I wanted. Yeah. And the facilities and the the specialists really. Um, and there's no point. go Reading exactly. Yeah. Um, Reading is great for bioarchaeology. So. There you go. <laughs> go for agriculture. As um, well. Yeah. So um, in the end, that that that's what I basically did. And I spent literally September to January just writing, like perfecting it. Um, to get the funding um, from the uh, South Wales and the West doctoral funding scheme. Right, okay. Um, so that's another point as well, if anyone yeah. is interested in doing a PhD. You can write a proposal like you did mm. and you can submit it to funding bodies yeah, and they yeah. go, yes, this is good enough, we want to pay for it or yeah, yeah. no, this is crap, do it again. Or you can apply for a project that's already someone has already done that for you which is what i did yeah um and normally an academic will write a proposal yeah and then they get it funded and then you apply for that mm. but you did it the harder way i think yeah i yeah people do but say you get to do way, yeah. what you want more of what you want mm. rather than doing someone else's project which is quite nice yeah i i like it because my obviously it's my project um you know obviously i have input from supervisors i actually have three supervisors um because it's kind of interdisciplinary my project yeah um which we can talk a bit about later but um yeah i i think i like the fact that um i can decide what i want to do there's no one's being like oh you got to do this you gotta yeah. do that um it is very much driven by me which is obviously difficult in some senses because it's not there's no one really there being like you got to do this part because it's integral to this part of the project if you know what i mean there's no yeah. one there's no one really there pushing in that sense mm-hmm. but um because it interests me so much like i'm I'm driven every day to kind of do that. Um, so, yeah. But um, I didn't even really consider applying to one of the kind of ready-made ones. I just kind of realized, like, oh, I'm going to design, design my own one. Um, yeah, why not? Yeah, why not? Um, I had the time to be there. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, the older, um, I had months, really, um, just sitting at home in, uh, back in Cardiff, where I'm from. So, um, Are you from, you're yeah, from Cardiff? I'm, I'm, yeah, I didn't pick that up with the, with the no, accent. No, no. People say I'm very... My parents are both English, so... Right, so, um, okay. They're from Manchester and Birmingham. What apparently. are you then? Are you Welsh? Te- well, I was born in Wales. How do you feel? I, no, I am Welsh. I'm Welsh. You are Welsh. <laughs> um, I'm very much Welsh. Because um, interestingly, I think the opposite happens all the time with... Like, I have a few friends that were born in England, have lived their whole lives in England because they have a Welsh parent. They're Welsh. Mm. I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> Stop supporting Wales at the rugby. It's annoying. Well, they want to do... It's controversial, Tosh. isn't it? Sorry. It's calling someone out specifically. <laughs> That will definitely have clipped, yes. That's going to be a problem. <laughs> um, oh, well, we'll deal with that later. But um, no, it is contra- I mean, no, I've always I've always associated with being Welsh. I mean, I've li- I literally lived there my whole yeah, life, essentially, yeah, yeah. up until I went to university in York. was um, That's where I was. Um, but never picked up the accent? No, weirdly not. I mean, the thing is, it's weird because cause Cardiff is, is, you know, I mean, people might hate me for saying this, but it's basically an, an English city. Yeah. In the sense that, it it's full of english people <laughs> <laughs> they just hopped over the uh, the border but um it's um and a lot of people do speak with english accents it's like a lot of um there is a cardiff accent mm-hmm. but it's not where i was really brought up in cardiff like a right. lot of realistically a lot of the kind of i suppose like kind of middle class kind of areas are quite um neutrally sounding i yeah, suppose right. um i'd say from my experience i mean i'm i don't really 
know that much about it. But um, as I said, my parents are both English. Obviously, I've been brought up with yeah. being spoken to in an English accent. I've gone to a school where the teachers sound mostly English, yeah. apart from the Welsh teacher. So it's like, <laughs> um, so it's, yeah. So it's come across that way. Really. Yeah. Where, where are your parents from? They're from Midlands or up north? So my, my mum's from Birmingham. My dad's yeah. from Manchester. Yeah. So it kind of like yeah, that amalgamates through. into yeah. some kind of weird, um, weird middle ground. But um, yeah. No, it's good. It's good. Um, I, my mum's from Derby and I somehow avoided that accent. Really? Yeah. yeah. Apparently I had it when I was like really young before school. Yeah. yeah. She was the only person I was really talking to. Yeah, yeah. I would say Bath and Grass and Castle and all of that. Yeah, yeah. But um, <laughs> that, that went away when, uh, when I started school in Buckinghamshire and they were like, you can't be talking like this anymore. Yeah. I was going to say your, yours is what I'd call like a kind of either neutral to kind of like not posh, posh. But like, it's yes. You know I mean? It's, it's like... slightly because <clears throat> we, we moved from Buckinghamshire to Suffolk. So that really sort mm. of evened it out. I was a little bit more lardy dar. Yeah. And then we moved to Suffolk <laughs> and that all got crushed straight away. Yeah. People were like, you can't be talking like that around here, around here. <laughs> um, but, uh, okay, so that's that's interesting that you um, you didn't want to go back to Wales to do anything, to do any more work, to do a project. You, you want to stay no, in England? No, no, I've always, um, I don't know, personally, um, the reason I went to York was because it was far away. Um, yeah. It's not It's not that I've got anything against um staying where i'm from i actually really love Cardiff. it's a very nice nice place to live or be brought up in i don't know i've always just liked going different places i mean it's why i came to reading i could have stayed at york do you want, if i wanted yeah, to yeah um but it's i don't know i prefer like mixing up like uh, meet as uh, you meet different people and you just like see different places as well uh, that's why initially i was i was looking at you know going to like canada or, or like yeah. new zealand to do yeah. a phd because i was like um I was interested in just going somewhere different where they do things differently um, and they research probably a bit differently as well. Yeah, get different um, perspectives. For get sure. different perspectives, which I think is good career-wise, personally. Yeah. I think it's very good. Yeah, definitely. But, um, you archaeologists, you all seem to be <laughs> travel bugs and people that like to do that. To yeah, yeah. New people like, obviously, Donna's from the Netherlands. She was on my first episode and, um, yeah, she's lived all over the place and then you meet people who are in agriculture and they're like nope i'm staying where i am i ain't going anywhere else <laughs> we're a much less yeah. adventurous group i think i think maybe that comes down to i mean archaeologists in general there's a whole thing of you, you can dig anywhere and there's digs going all over the place i mean yeah. i've digged in i went i went to sicily and dug there for like one and a half months you, you can kind of go anywhere if you know if you have the people the contacts basically yeah um I'm I'm always trying to get on digs to be fair. Like, <laughs> like I think um, I would be if I was all all over the place. But yeah. um, but yeah, I don't know. I've I've always just been interested in kind of traveling in general. So I think that comes out in also the research side of things as yeah. well. I want to be. So when did you move to Reading then? Um, so as I said, I was I was in Oxford before this. Mm -hmm. So that's I was working in commercial archaeology. Once I once I applied. For PhD, commercial. Who is paying for commercial archaeology? Oh, well, that's an what is that? Impression. Um, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's the the fun side. Well, it's not the fun side of archaeology. It's the hard side of archaeology. <laughs> um, it's it's basically there's a lot of commercial units. So there's there's um, I don't know. If there's I don't know the exact law surrounding it, but a lot of if you essentially have a redevelopment, you know, say you're building a Tesco's, um. You need to have a kind of archaeological survey to check if there's okay. anything of significance um, to like British heritage, British history, um, so to speak. I've um, seen these people. Mm. They put a big electricity cable in that went right past my mum's mm. house through the sort of Suffolk countryside. 
and they had people with like trowels yeah, and yeah, yeah. flags well, well, it's, digging um, for It's remains. called a watching brief. This is the, the initial thing is a watching brief. So the most basic form of it, you'll go in, you'll check, is there actually anything there? If there's nothing, you can carry on building. If they find something that's significant, um, then often you'll have to undertake a more kind of major archaeological investigation, uh, depending on what you find um, or what you initially find and what you think might be there. Um, it's kind of um, rocketed recently because of HS2. Like High Speed yeah. Railway 2 has, has meant that there is a lot of commercial archaeology work and I'm t- like big, big projects. I mean, I was on I was on a site that was was massive. It was, you know, we dug a massive cemetery. We're talking like 800 800 uh, inhumations in the cemetery, loads of cremations. You know, there was Roman roads everywhere. There was there was all sorts who were digging. Um, and, you know, that's kind of part of the remit of HS2. They've been like, oh, we need to, you know, to be kind of on the side of the public, we need to, like, basically excavate all this stuff and, um, you know, understand British archaeology, British heritage um, more. Um, so essentially that's what I was doing. Um, I was just on a site for seven months um, digging, which was really fun. You don't get paid much, but um, mm. it's... Um, it is exciting. Obviously, people do this as a career. Like some people, literally, will work their whole life in commercial archaeology, um, and it's the one place that you can do it really yeah. in the UK because of the laws surrounding it. And there's a lot of a lot of big companies that actually do it that specifically focus on commercial archaeology. Um, so yeah, that's what I was doing initially before I came to Reading, and that was in Oxford. That's where I was based. But I kind of went around. I think I was, I was based in Buckinghamshire, where we actually okay. dug. Um, but um, do you know where? Um, where is it? I'm trying to think. It was called the site was called Fleet Marston. It was near. Oh, I think it began with an A or a B or something like Not that. Not Aylesbury. Or Aylesbury, Bletch. yeah, yeah. Aylesbury. Oh, it was cool. right next to Aylesbury. I went yeah. to school in Aylesbury. Really? Yeah. That's a weird. Yeah. <laughs> Only for a year. Yeah, that was. That but was, yeah, um, right next to there in in, in a farmer's field. Yeah. So um, yeah, and they're they're putting a railway line right through it. Right through it. Right through the middle. Brilliant. Of it. Um. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think um, they they did it in Suffolk because we have there's always like Roman hordes being found in, oh, yeah. in Suffolk. Like there's so, there's so much Roman everywhere. stuff everywhere to be yeah. honest. But they're ever so busy, the Romans, aren't they? I know they're all over the place, everywhere. leaving their hordes for us to find. So you you've you've moved here. How are you finding Reading? Uh yeah, it's it's not it's 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 different because obviously I'm used to so obviously I was I was in Cardiff and I went to York. And then Oxford. York and Oxford are very historical mm-hmm. cities. Um, they've got a lot of old buildings, which is, uh, they've got a lot of character, yeah. is what I'd, I'd call it. But Reading doesn't have so much character. How dare you? In my opinion. I've actually um, never been to Reading. I just <laughs> come to the university. I've never the been camp- to like, well, the yeah, town. That's the thing. You've probably got um, a bit of a misconception of what Reading is because the campus is really nice. Mm. The, the rest of the town, no, <laughs> um, no it's um, it's nice enough, but it's, it's, um, I don't know. Maybe it's I'll not just, York. Yeah, it's not York or yeah. Oxford. I mean, I've I've come accustomed to very um, nice cities with a lot of nice historical walls, historical buildings, nice gardens, nice parks. Um, and Reading does have a bit of that, but it's not to the same extent. Maybe it's even more appropriate because I suppose that Reading's more of a sprung up, more up in the kind of eighteen hundreds mm. anyway. So yeah, for me anyway, maybe it's more appropriate. But um, <laughs> yeah, the campus is really nice. Um, I really love the campus. It's probably one of the nicest campuses I've been on, university wise. So. Yeah, it is nice. I'm trying to think how it compares to. I've been to f- this is my fourth university. I'm trying to think how it compares. It's definitely nicer than Warwick. 
but mm. I hated Warwick. So yeah, I've never been. To um, Warwick was quite pretty, but I, I despised being there. Um, I mean, the, the architecture is probably better than UEA, but UEA has amazing grounds, and because it's like in the middle of Norfolk, like it's just yeah, yeah. room. Um, where else have I been? Surrey. Surrey's nice, actually. Yeah, yeah. I've heard Surrey's Although nice. the buildings are a little bit drab, a yeah, lot of concrete, yeah. same as UEA. Um, but here you've got like old white knights. Yeah, building, yeah. Which is cool, sort of yeah, old nice. bit of architecture. And it's all brick, though. That's the only thing. I think places like York have an advantage. They use stone to build. Mm. I just think brick always looks naff. It does, yeah. Comparatively. Com- yeah, yeah, compared to like a grand stone. Like the cathedral in York is yeah. Well, the thing awesome. is, like the um, the great thing about York is that the actual university itself is actually a '60s university, so right. it, it's quite ugly. I'm gonna be honest with you. Like a lot of the university buildings, but the archaeology was actually taught in um, King's Manor, which is a manor house from like in the 12th century. Like wow. that's still maintained. Um, and they they always vote every year. Like, should we move to back to like the the normal campus or should we stay here and everyone always votes to stay in king's manor <laughs> but um yeah it's a really really nice old building um and obviously like ideal for archaeology really um but yeah yeah it must be uh nice for archaeologists to be in an old building i think it it fits yeah, yeah. doesn't it, it makes yeah, sense it does fit. um makes sense for a agricultural student to be in a field yeah um, which yeah is, exactly you know, where i, I want to <laughs> be although not at the moment because it's bloody freezing at the moment yeah um Okay, so you've you've sort of settled in mm. to Reading. You aren't a huge fan of Reading City, but no, the campus right. is right. nice, nice enough to stay anyway. Yeah, yeah, definitely hasn't yeah. put you off too much. <laughs> um, and uh, so, what what have you been? I guess you've been doing this for a few months. Yeah, now. a few months. Yeah. So did you start in September? Yeah, I started in September. Yeah. Whenever that was, late September. Right. Okay. So a, cu- a couple of months. Yeah. And um, what have you been? What have you been up to? What have been doing? Um, so. Initially, I've been doing I've been doing quite a lot of literature stuff, really. Yep. Um, just looking at the different literature. And I, in my initial meeting, my supervisor set out. They were like, "Oh, I want you to look at this specific thing." Um, so I started researching that. Um, so in, a lot of my work last term was looking at um, a rather complex um, hypothesis. It's called the um, Dohad hypothesis. It's um, right. What's that? It essentially means the development origins of health and disease hypothesis. Development um, origins of health and so disease. So essentially, it, it states that um, um, environmental stresses during early life, essentially in utero, and then the first 1,000 days of life, right. um, have kind of detrimental effects on um, adult health. Yep. So there's a direct link there. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know yeah, about yeah. this in nutrition. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because they're always yeah. banging on about 1,000 they, they days. Always, yeah, 1,000 days is the big yeah. one because that's the important period for kind of growth and development. Yeah um like really integral um and yeah essentially i was just researching the kind of clinical um aspects of that 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 are extremely complicated i'm going to be honest with you um epigenetics all sorts of things oh yeah that's always fun isn't it come thrown in which is just yeah beyond my head in some respects but um and i was also looking at the kind of bioarchaeology stuff what's been done with that in kind of bioarchaeology because it is starting to be applied um to um a kind of bioarchological context. Obviously, there's, there's significant limitations with that. But, um, yeah, so I was looking at that, and then I was also um, looking at how it would apply to kind of the Industrial Revolution as well, in, in some respects. Um, but, yeah, it was really interesting, actually. Um, 
because I haven't really, I, I knew about it, but I didn't really, I hadn't done much research on it. Um, and I essentially wrote, so I've got that, that's like a ch- section of, of one chapter, I suppose, um, looking at um, the development origins of health and disease. Um, so I wrote that, that was like 5,000 words. So that's what I spent most of the last time doing, um, really. And um, now, um, and then I did a lot of, now I'm kind of focused on the historical side of things. So the cl- complete opposite, really, um, of the Industrial Revolution and just looking at um, the kind of general background and context of the period, like health, diet, um, but also like living conditions, um, like population dynamics a bit, you know, um, migration, stuff like that. Just looking at the general period and, and what kind of changed um and how that change is obviously um, um, applicable to looking at health and diet and and these very young individuals that I look at. Mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting that this is what you chose to study. Mm. So you know you're an archaeologist. You could have picked anything, any yeah. point in history, <laughs> and any population of people or animals or plants or anything. Yeah, and you chose sort of 1800s industrializing england yeah or the uk or whatever and and young people children yeah what was it about that that interested you why did you want to study this particular area and this group of people there's yeah i think there's there's a number of things that come into it. i mean um as i initially i did a master's in that kind of similar um similar on a similar topic and i kind of fell into that um accidentally really because of covid because there was just availability of that data. Right, yeah. Um, and then I was kind of interested in particularly social status. And what's kind of interesting about the Industrial Revolution, as I said before, is you can see so- social status within the cemetery. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't really do that with a lot of other population, cemetery populations. So, for example, the medieval period or before that, the Romans, there's no way of distinguishing, oh, that's a high so- social status burial compared to a low social, okay. so- social status burial. Unless it's like yeah. so overt, yeah. like Sutton Hoo stuff, where they're, yeah, they're o- in a obviously, shit. Yeah, you know, so, um, yeah. <laughs> but that's rare. That's rare. Um, but, you know, what's interesting is obviously... You, with the industrial revolution you get that within the cemetery and then also w- between different cemeteries as well um and you can then compare health of different social statuses um which i think is really interesting um and then the children aspect of it um i think i was just drawn by the fact that obviously you know the these like health is just so important in that that period that as i said that 1000 days i was just so intrigued by the fact that that can essentially determine your health for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. You know that they like in clinical studies, they found that um, there is a link between you know early life health and you know non-communicable disease, you know heart disease, cancer. It is is more prevalent in individuals that experience significant stress in in childhood, which I think is just really interesting um, and really still very poorly understood in some mm, respects. Definitely. I think that's that's why I was just intrigued by that. Um, and, and the other aspect is, is obviously the historical aspect. I think, um, you know, I've always been interested in the industrial revolution from quite, quite a young age. Um, and it's the period where you start to get documentary evidence that can supplement the bioarchaeological right. evidence. Right. Okay. So you've got these kind of, um, mortality records to a certain degree. You've got, um, censuses that, you know, list causes of death, um, You've also got kind of um, parish registrars that are specific to, you know, a cemetery. Um, so you can determine the um, kind of cause of death. You can determine the social status. Uh, you can look a bit into 
kind of families and stuff like that um, to a certain degree. Obviously, it is quite limited um, in the kind of 1700s, 1800s, but you can still kind of piece together stuff. Um, and yeah, I think I was just interested in the combination of kind of all of it that I kind of wanted to in, in, interpret. And then the, the mother-infant respect, I, just, I think it's just really important to like, because it's not really looked at in, in bioarchaeology. Obviously, the, the mother's health is integral to the infant's health, especially, obviously, you know, in, u in utero, it's really important um, that the nutritional status of a mother is, is really good. Um, and then, obviously, it needs to maintain, uh, sorry, a mother needs to maintain, obviously, their health during kind of breastfeeding, because obviously they're passing on, you know, they're passing on essentially their nutritional status to, to their child. Yeah. Um, yeah if, I, if I remember from my nutrition course correctly, I think women need more calories per day to breastfeed mm. than they do during gestation. It's actually more calorifically yeah, yeah. intense to produce milk than it is to produce a person. Yeah. I, I did not know that, but that's that's. I, I think that's true. I'll, I'll, I don't I'll think have I a look, but no, that, that is that that's really true. interesting. Um, but yeah, I was just interested in the like the combination of all these factors, essentially, all, all in one, really. Mm. Um, and at a time period where you've got reasonably good, yeah, data. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, there's um, and what's great about HS2 actually is that um, they are digging up a lot of industrial populations um, recently, and that's actually the, the population I'm looking at. Um, St. James is from London and was right. um, exhumed because of HS2 because okay. they're building extending Houston rail rail um, uh, railway station. Whereabouts so. is that in London? Um, it's like so it's Houston Station, which I'm not exactly sure where that Houston is. Station, yeah. It must be. I I think it's the north side of the river, but I I don't. On top of my head, I don't exactly know where it is. It's near say like so the cemetery itself was St. James Gardens. Right, I'm not sure where that is. But um I don't know North London very well. Yeah, either way, so it's St. James Gardens. Um that was initially St. James Cemetery and they just built on top of it as a garden, mm -hmm. there was just a cemetery underneath it. Um good fertilizer in the soil. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um so essentially I think they I don't know how many they initially exhumed, but the sample is five thousand individuals, so it's a really big Strong sample. sample. Yeah. Yeah. Which you just can't really get um um anywhere in the world, like samples that size. Um and obviously, my my sample will be a lot smaller because of the age demographic I'm looking at specifically. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, but there's still potential to be a lot of very young individuals, but also a lot of of mothers, which is what I also want to look at. Um, oh, that's so sad. Potential mothers, I should say. Do you have to sort of compartmentalize that part of it um, when you're like, yeah, thinking it, about it, it is sad. I mean, the, the part of the reason I want to do it is because obviously these are. Um, quite marginalized people in society in, in certainly in the industrial revolution i mm -hmm. think like you're not um you're not telling the stories of women and children right that's not really um that's not really documented particularly well in history in some respects i don't think right um so i think it, it's interesting to tell the stories of, of 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 people that kind of didn't survive very long but they are an integral part of that history because obviously you know, as I said, the period's renowned for having poor health, really mm. high infant mortality. Um, um, that was was related to kind of the industrial revolution and what was happening at the time. Um, you know, poor hygiene, like you know, cramped urban conditions. You know, uh, so I think it's really important to kind of tell their stories because no one else would. Yeah. If, you know, if, in some respects, do you know what I mean? Um, in life, they weren't weren't remembered really. In yeah. some respects, apart from obviously the families, mm -hmm. but no one else really cared. So it's kind of. Um, 
it's interesting to tell that story, I think. Yeah. It's interesting um, as well that presumably getting the majority of your data from mm. a gravesite presents you with quite a strong bias towards yeah. people that died. Yeah. And there must be people that lived that may not be represented by that sample. I wondered if you have any thoughts about that. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a massive problem in, in the whole of bioarchaeology. It's a, it's a classic problem of mortality bias. So, obviously, um, you're seeing the people that did not survive. So, essentially, you're seeing the most unhealthy in reality. Um, and, obviously, you can look at people of different ages. Um, so, obviously, in a cemetery, you'll have, obviously, the whole age range, really. Um but because I'm looking at very young, and this is a problem with my study at the moment, this is something I'm trying to tackle, is that obviously I'm saying I want to look at zero to three-year-olds and I want to specifically look at kind of cultural feeding practices of that age category um, when you'd expect breastfeeding and weaning to have taken place. But the problem is if I just look at individuals that have died at that age, obviously that's not representative really. That's essentially the unhealthiest individuals really. So it's like how do you get around um, looking at that? Um, you know, you're only seeing a, it's very biased, as you say. Um, but yeah, in terms of getting around it in general, um, it is very problematic. Um, and you do have to just always remember that um, there is a, is a certain amount of mortality bias there. Um, for example, like any, any non-adult in general that's died before the age of 18, obviously they were probably unhealthy um, yeah. in the vast majority yeah. of cases. There's a reason why they've died. Um in, in, and in most cases in the Industrial Revolution, it's probably acute disease and you're not going to see that on the skeleton. Um, but um, yeah, it is problematic. There's also there's also this thing um, in bioarchaeology, I don't even know about it. It's kind of, um, it's called the ostological paradox and it kind of talks about this in more detail. I don't want to do a, a disservice. So it's, <laughs> it goes into a lot of detail. And it's quite theoretical, um, but it does talk about um, these kind of problems with um, mortality bias kind of selection bias like hidden heterogeneity which is kind of like um we don't know um that there's things that we can't account for essentially yeah. um in a population um that we just can't see from historical data from from any any kind of um data that has caused um that individual to die and we just don't know why they've died yeah. essentially yeah um which is problematic when you're trying to interpret their health yeah um and essentially there's certain ways of kind of getting around it there's something called um a measure of kind of frailty there's loads of um i think there's a few but it's essentially trying to determine who is the most frail in a population um by like how much how many skeletal kind of um indicators of kind of health and disease they've got on their skeleton and you, it gives you kind of a frailty score essentially and you can kind of try and interpret oh that population is more frail than that um so it's sort of a general yeah more general overview of yeah, the health yeah. of the population um but then you can kind of interpret and be like, obviously, you know that population's frail uh, to a certain degree. So, yeah, it's very complex. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be honest with you. It's um, it, it's a very, it, it's a problem that all kind of bioarchaeologists, all osteoarchaeologists, kind of experience um, when looking at a population. Because there's also all sorts of other problems that are associated with it. You could, you could talk about kind of migration as well. Like, because obviously, when you look at a population, you're assuming they're stationary. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. You know, they may have they may have lived in all sorts of places in their life. And, you know, if you're saying, oh, they've got poor diet, that's associated with this environment. Well, what if they were brought up yeah. in, you yeah. know, in a rural environment? Which and then an they awful migrated. lot of people did. Yeah, exactly. And this is the problem with the Industrial Revolution specifically is that there's so much migration going on that you, you can't say, for example, I'm looking at these adult women, you know, saying, oh, 
theoretically they were brought up in London, they lived their whole lives in London, there's a high chance that probably most of them migrated from elsewhere into London. Um, yeah. Obviously, it's not the it's, it's all right with the kind of very young children because you can assume that yeah. if they're three, they probably have lived their yeah. whole lives in in London. But um, yeah, it is a it's an interesting, <laughs> mm. it's an interesting one. So you've we've talked a little bit about what you what you did before and what you're up to now. Um, it'd be interesting to know what your plans are going forward. Mm. Um, sort of like a COVID feels like it's ramping down slightly. Yeah. Um, although it felt like that last summer, um, and then it came back. Um, but there potentially is an opportunity to do a little bit more and you know get out and do some archaeology, I guess. So yeah. I I wonder what your your short term plans are, and then maybe we can talk about your your longer term plans afterwards. Um, yeah, short term. Um, at the moment, I'm just working on. So initially, I was I was working on this um, access form for for the, my main skeletal population. So mm -hmm. I still have to request access for it from HS2. Right. Um, and essentially, that's quite that has to be quite in depth because I'm I'm going to be doing destructive analysis on on, right. the, okay. on the remains. Um, so my isotope, the the isotope part of my study will be destructive because obviously I need to sample the, the bone. Um, and and the dentition of, of the the children um, and the adult women, so um, that will be destructive. So that has to be quite in depth because you know they're quite opposed often to destructive analysis unless there's real reason to do it. Yeah. Um, and it's gonna um, you know you're gonna get some significant results essentially. Um, so you have to go into quite a depth and convince them why you should be allowed to do that. Um, so I've been working on that recently and that's more or less done. That's just with my supervisors at the moment. They're doing the kind of like once over of it mm -hmm. um, to make sure it's okay. And that will be sent off then. And at the moment, I'm really just kind of working on the like literature, historical background stuff. Um, and then looking forward into the kind of like near future, I suppose I will start developing kind of some, a framework of how I want to analyze the kind of remains. Um, what exactly am I looking at? Um, so obviously scurvy or you know rickets or anemia um, and what kind of skeletal markers am I am I looking for um, and developing kind of table um, um, or recording system for that essentially for the population um, and then I'll start doing some initial kind of um, basic um, like kind of trial and error kind of analysis I think mm -hmm. uh, lab based stuff because there's a population already housed at Reading right um, that is industrial um, but it's small and essentially I want to kind of I will be using that in my PhD, but I think I'm going to be kind of doing the initial like testing the waters with that population, yeah, yeah. just to see like um, what works and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, and I might even do some initial kind of um, like chemical analysis, so isotopic stuff with that population, just to see um, if I can, because obviously I've never actually done this particular um, sampling strategy for this this isotopic. Um, uh, for the for these isotopes essentially so it's going to be a bit of a learning curve i think with it mm. um and no one in this actual university has done it so it's going to be a yeah, bit like right. it's a bit like you know it's it's um it's going to be interesting the methods obviously you know there for everyone to use but um it's um so that will be interesting and then moving forward i'll probably start the kind of you know more like september time moving onwards i'll start the the big analysis of of the of my population if, if i can get it essentially mm um from hs2 which is yeah what's the contingency plan then if they just there's a say lot of no. there's a lot of populations that they are likely to say yes they, yeah. they they um so the government part of their remit is that they have to um they have to um you know um kind of lend the skeletons for research 
Um, so they have to do that. Um, and one of the things they want to focus on is health diet in the industrial period. That's one of the, like, it's in the right. kind of big document, their phase one strategy, as they call it, um, of what they want to do with with kind of HS2 and archaeology in general. So they are, they are um, open to research. They welcome it, to be fair. Uh, it's just whether, like, you don't know who's also requesting that population yeah it's probably going to be quite desirable and it, it depends on um you know you know who's um who's got what ideas what they really like and what they don't like but i i mean i've been i've been assured that it's likely that it'll be accepted yeah but there is there is other options there's there's a hs2 population from birmingham right um so i could do that that's also industrial um very big population as well um and there's 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 several others that kind of flow about so it's like there is options out there. It's yeah. not like I wouldn't have a population. It just might set me back slightly. I think. Yeah, I, I guess it makes sense that the government would be interested in this area, considering the things you said earlier about the parallels between mm. industrializing Britain and yeah. currently industrializing places around the world. It yeah, yeah. makes sense that they'd want to know, yeah, yeah. you know, what was going on nutritionally with these people and in terms of environmental stress, and then potentially, hopefully, you'd you'd like to think that some actionable information would, would come out of that yeah, from, no, from their perspective, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, definitely. <coughs> Sorry. Um, okay, could you talk a little bit about isotopic analysis? Because I, will, I think yeah. it's magic. Just, I understand how it works. Very basically from like GCSE yeah. biology. But it it's almost seems too good to be true as a technique that yeah. we can find out how old things are. Mm. based on isotopes so it'd be great if you could explain that a little bit so obviously with my isotopes i'm specifically looking at diet mm -hmm. um so essentially i'm looking at nitrogen and carbon and the whole thing about isotopes is obviously some people get confused but it's actually the isotope ratios that you're looking at right from so i'm looking at um, obviously stable isotopes which are obviously non-radiometric so they're not radioactive they don't yeah. have half lives or anything yeah like they that. don't break down over uh, time. they don't break down over time um so essentially, uh, nitrogen and carbon are perfect for this. Um, and essentially, looking at the ratios of one isotope to another. So obviously, you, nitrogen 15 to nitrogen 14 is what I'm looking at, for example, with nitrogen. And carbon is nitrogen 12 to 13. Essentially, it's like you're looking at the heavier one to the lighter one. Mm -hmm. um, so people might not know that elements like carbon and nitrogen yeah. can come in different forms that basically just differ based on weight yeah atomic it's, weight. It's atomic mass yeah. yeah so essentially they have the same number of protons and electrons but a different number of neutrons essentially is is um but they are the same element yeah it's just as you say different mass um so obviously nitrogen is the uh, the heavier one um and obviously these are um these are then kind of essentially taken up by the body uh differently depending on the mass so i'll go into that a bit more detail if I can. I'll um so essentially um when you obviously consume food, any food um contains they contain obviously nitrogen carbon. Um and that is then essentially taken up into the tissues, incorporated into the tissues through kind of growth um, and remodeling of bone, for example. Um so obviously I'm specifically looking at bone and dentition. Um so as as the bone and dentition grow, that is then incorporated in the tissues um through growth. Um, and obviously, you know, obviously it's used for kind of base metabolic rate or mm -hmm. all sorts of other things um, as well. Um, but essentially from that, you can get a general idea of what someone's kind of diet, well, specifically for me, diet um, at a certain time of their life. Um, so for bone, 
it's um it's useful um right, so in adults in adults it's useful for kind of the last 10 years of life because essentially because bone remodels um your it remodels i think it's, it's about every 10 to 15 years you get a complete essentially new set of bone really oh wow um, a whole new skeleton yeah yeah, yeah. It's not um, bad. um or certain part remodels 10 to 15 years i think so it's kind of um i don't exactly the, no, the exact science of it but i know the best place to sample for example for bone is essentially the ribs and that's because that gives you um essentially the last three to five years of life okay and so they're turned over faster, faster yeah okay. essentially that's a faster turnover rate um so that's the last three to five years of life um that's really interesting i never yeah, yeah. guessed that I, I i'm gonna be honest i don't know why i don't know why that's a faster <laughs> turnover rate um but um but essentially um you get the last three to five years of life um of their diet and obviously that's an average diet so that's the average over three to five years yes um which is why in some respects it's not that useful yeah yeah and <laughs> like you're not you're not going into detail and being like oh they ate this on this day it's not it's not like <laughs> that um and essentially but the other useful aspect of it and the thing i'm going to be focused on is obviously the teeth so the teeth are a bit more well they're a lot more useful in my opinion um because um the dentition grows incrementally and you have these kind of increments um sequential increments that you can then um, assign to a specific kind of period of time. Mm. So, you know, obviously um, the teeth are associated specifically with childhood. And that's when they grow. So, you know, you, you'll get the diet from whenever they start to grow in utero, I think um, 0.5 months maybe before um, birth up right, until okay. kind of... Um, so the teeth come in quite late then? I think... I, I think I think it's when they initially start growing, 0.5. Or maybe it's, maybe it's, maybe it's a few more... Maybe it's a lot earlier than that. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. Because I. Oh, maybe. Maybe that's the um, the permanent. Because the permanent and it's quite complex. Because the permanent and deciduous. Um, so de deciduous being milk teeth. Are they call them deciduous? That's what they're deciduous, called. Yeah, they're called deciduous teeth. Ah. Are growing at the same time in Egypt. Like like the um the cusp or the kind of crown of the the M1 the permanent one actually starts growing in utero. Oh wow. But obviously, you're still getting your milk teeth that are growing as well. It's it's very it's very complicated. I'm going to be honest here. Yeah. It goes in my head. I always have to look at these Odd, charts to work out when like one tooth grows and when I can actually use it and what right, it's actually yeah. telling me. Yeah. So, um, but essentially, they grow in these kind of increments. And what you can then do, you can demineralize the tooth. Um, and say you take, um, sorry, say you take the M1, for example, the permanent M1. That then tells you from say, your 0.5 months before um, birth up until um i don't know when it's fully mineralized i know it erupts at six so say it's like 9.5 years old i think something around that so that gives you like 10 years of life but then you demineralize it and you cut up the segments and then obviously you know that's 10 years of life and if you divide by the amount of increments you've got you then can assign a specific period of time to each increment okay so almost sense. like tree rings yeah almost like tree rings wow. so you know that obviously it's forming from the crown yeah um so you know you might assign that's the first five months of life there mm. in that increment depending on obviously it depends um you essentially cut them up with a scalpel um as, as small as possible but it's kind of one millimeter increments right you might have like 20 or so and they represent you know certain months of life um as i said it is quite complicated and it's a fairly new developing science really within bioarchaeology um it's only kind of recently um i think since 2014 that they've or 2013 that it's initially been done this kind of incremental way um, that allows you to um, 
access diet more specifically tem- mm. tempor- temporally. Um, so yeah, essentially that's what I want to be looking at. Um, and yeah, in terms of the isotopes then, in terms of nitrogen and carbon um, with kind of breastfeeding and weaning, um, that's then um, incorporated. So essentially when, you, when you're breastfed, you're kind of one trophic level above your mother is, is, the, is the general right general idea um and that's that's related to the fact that obviously you're you're feeding off her her tissues essentially her her nutrients um but um yeah so so that that that's that's essentially how how that works i mean it's i think i've kind of butchered isotopes a bit there but um <laughs> um so you're 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 looking at the the ratio of of two types of or two versions of the same element yeah. Of, of carbon and nitrogen yeah. in your case so presumably do people do other are there other stable yeah yeah elements um, there's other stable isotopes people look at oxygen people right. look at strontium that's more for mobility migration okay um because that's related to obviously the geology so for example from right. say, a wa- water okay. water source um obviously like if rock for example i mean this is the way i don't know much about these isotopes if i'm being honest with you but um from what i understand it's the degradation of kind of rock it means that basically certain water will have certain levels of kind of strontium and right. oxygen. And then um, obviously that relates to, um, you can then see that in the bones and the, uh, yeah, and, okay. and all the teeth. That and makes you sense. can essentially measure that. So, so you, so you are doing this, this, you're looking for the ratio of, of the different versions of the same element, carbon and nitrogen. Yeah. And you are able to do that at the level of layers yeah. within yeah, teeth. teeth. Yeah. Yeah. So you can really find out yeah, yeah. what people have, and and presumably the ratios are different based on diet. Yeah. So yeah, I'll, I'll go. And, I didn't really explain that properly, but like in terms of, um, so for example, with breastfeeding, as I say, um, you get uh, an increase in um, the nitrogen, um, the, the the essentially heavier nitrogen um, isotope signal of a uh, nitrogen fifteen um, compared to nitrogen fourteen. Um, so there's an increase in, in, in the ratio there. Um, the problem is, is that it can, and this is where it gets really complex. I won't go into too much detail, but the, the night, the way it can be interpreted in several different ways. Um, so obviously isotope ratios only go up or down, which is, they're not going like side to side or, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It's only up or down, which is, is the problem. So, but that, that up or down could mean several different things depending on how you look at it. So obviously breastfeeding, as I say, um, you should expect an increase in, 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 in nitrogen 15, essentially compared to nitrogen 14. Um, and that's because I think there's a, um, as I said, you're consuming your mother's breast milk, which is a higher trophic level. Um, and it means it's because there's another layer of, of what they call fractionation, which is essentially it, that again is very complex is essentially where, um, um, to be honest, I don't. I do know what it means, but it's just, it's just like very in my head. It's like, I'm still getting to grips with it myself. I'm mm. going to be, be honest with you. But well, essentially presumably, how... presumably the, so a woman is eating food yeah. that has a specific ratio of the two types of nitrogen. Yeah. yeah. And then something is happening in her body that's yeah. changing that slightly by the point it gets yeah. into the milk. Well, it essentially increases up the food chain, which is why, right. if you know, so, um, um, because there's like these essentially there's these reactions as I said like fractionation uh, reactions which means that um essentially 
like kind of basically it just becomes more enriched in 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 nitrogen yeah. 15 and then the, the 14 the baby consumes that yeah. and it's incorporated in their teeth yeah. and that's what you're looking yeah. for i think it's because essentially because the 14 nitrogen 14 for example is, is a lighter it's preferentially uptaken so it means there's okay. an increase um it's, it's preferentially uptaken for growth and stuff like that right which means there's an increase in the kind of ratio mm-hmm. of nitrogen 15 mm-hmm. um it's more complicated than that but either either mm. way um we'll just go with the basic stuff um I'm sure it's presumably not even fully understood. No, there's nothing no. like this ever um, is. Well, especially with what I'm about to talk about. Um, so there's um, <laughs> so obviously there's breastfeeding, which obviously increasing nitrogen and also an increasing carbon um, thirteen as well. But that the carbon's very minimal. It's it's more the nitrogen you're kind of looking at. Um, but the problem is, an increase in nitrogen can also be associated with kind of stress. Um, okay. So essentially, when you, um. When you experience nutritional stress, um, particularly, um, you know, kind of infectious disease, even and or trauma, um, particularly for kind of longer periods of time, like kind of chronic stress, you um, you kind of catabolize your own proteins. Right. Um, so you use your own body tissues. So yeah. For example, if you're starving, you yep. use your own body tissues. Um, and essentially, that also increases the um, the 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 nitrogen um, ratio as well, because you're okay. essentially preferentially using the nitrogen 14 which is lighter so that's what you're using straight away um um as kind of energy i suppose right whilst obviously there's then a higher um there's there's an increase in the ratio of nitrogen 15 comparatively Mm -hmm. that will then be locked in the kind of tissues yeah um but yeah essentially the problem is it could also be that so when you're looking at the these these curves they, they have to um there's a specific breastfeeding curve that is kind of an increase it's a very sharp increase in um, nitrogen um, and also increasing um, carbon but then or ca- isotope and carbon ratios mm-hmm. um, and then a subtle a kind of gradual decrease from kind of complementary feeding right you know, like weaning okay. over time um, and um, yeah but you don't always see that that's the problem you see all sorts of weird like isotopic profiles um, that are very difficult to interpret um, unfortunately because <laughs> um, obviously then like you know specific foods then when it comes to weaning specific foods have different nitrogen um and carbon isotopic um, ratios as well yeah so it then it's then interpreting that yeah. you know you're looking at a c3 or a c4 plan or you're looking at a um yeah <laughs> it, it gets a bit complicated and then obviously adding protein and what what kind of protein is it marine or is it um terrestrial gets more complicated but um yeah essentially i'm i'm looking specifically obviously that's that's complicated, but I'm looking specifically at kind of breastfeeding and weaning and seeing if I can see that kind of signature, essentially, which obviously will be quite difficult to interpret, but that's what I'm looking for, mm-hmm. really. And then what um, are you looking for that to be associated with? So the, you, you're finding out mm-hmm. if they were breastfed, presumably, or how long for, or things yeah. like that, the characteristics of that period. Yeah. And then presumably that will be associated with some other measure that you're looking yeah. at like. well i'm looking at um so as i said i'm initially i'm looking at the items that to look at the diet and the health and also um to, to add to make it even more complex you can also look at the maternal health so because as i say because you know you've got that in utero segment so the first you know the first segment of the 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 dentition might have formed in utero mm. that'll give you an interpretation of kind of what the maternal health was like yeah because that's obviously direct um directly related to the mother um and her nutritional status essentially that's more difficult to interpret but 
that's something that I also want to add. That's why I want to have the kind of maternal and child aspect to it. Um, also looking at that. Um, but yeah, in terms of um, other stuff I'm looking at, I'm looking at, I'm doing a classic kind of macroscopic analysis um, of osteological um, material. So I'll be looking on the skeleton for evidence of nutritional deficiency. So, you know, scurvy, um, iron deficiency, anemia. I'll also be looking at kind of um, growth disruption if I can if I can see it essentially. Um, and maybe rickets. I mean, the issue with rickets is obviously it's not nutritionally based. Um, it, it's more related to, as you say, sunlight and mm -hmm. UVB radiation rather than, um, you know, consumption of food with vitamin D in. So it's more complicated to look at that in relation to diet. Um, but um, yeah, any kind of dietary measure I can kind of gauge from the skeleton. How um, do you tell if, if a, a skeleton had scurvy? So it's um it's quite specific. You get the specific um porosity um, right. in in the in, in the skeleton. Um and there's basically specific kind of indicators on the skeleton. It, it, particularly in the eye orbits, obviously relates to bleeding of the eye orbits essentially. Right. And you get this porosity and obviously like you're losing um you're obviously losing blood with scurvy because of the kind of nature of like um bleeding from the eye orbits and you actually sometimes you get this weird kind of you can actually almost see they've bled from the eye orbits but i'm not exactly sure how that works but <laughs> you can get um yeah you can essentially get porosity from the eye orbits it's quite specific um it's quite nasty looking um so where can, the bones essentially see destroyed. around the eye no in within the eye orbits so it'd be like in okay. within there not um not around it right. within the actual eye orbits itself um that's very characteristic so the thing is with with a lot of um looking for evidence of um disease on the skeleton it's um it's quite complex obviously you have stuff that's characteristic of a disease but it could also be another disease yeah. that's the problem um and what you need is you need a combination of kind of skeletal markers that that equal it being kind of diagnostic so it's definitely that yeah. disease um and there's some obviously markers that only occur in, in within certain diseases um but yeah to a certain extent the, the the body can only react to disease in a certain mm -hmm. number of ways. So you can either kind of form bone um, or uh, you can obviously destroy bone essentially or a combination of the both. Those are the only ways that a body can react to disease essentially. So um, that's what that's what you're essentially looking for and kind of you're looking for the way um, a pathology may um, look really, I suppose. But with scurvy, yeah, it, it's um, it produces porosity at all, on all sorts of, on, on different parts of the skeleton that are, like for example the sphenoid bone in in the in the 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 skull is quite a diagnostic when you get porosity on the wings of the sphenoid um and basically you kind of have to determine where uh the porosity um essentially little, little holes in the bone really um is occurring um and what and what that kind of indicates about the individual but um yeah with scurvy it's it's basically porosity that you really use yeah um, oh scurvy sounds horrible yeah yeah no it is it is horrible obviously the that the soft tissue sounds way more horrible than the bones. I mean, mm. to be honest, there's a lot more catastrophic things that you can see on the skeleton um, than scurvy. Um, oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, a lot more. I was, what was I looking at the other day? I was looking at, well, I was looking at someone with syphilis, totally unrelated, but, um, and this individual, it, it was absolutely horrible. They had, so they had, um, with syphilis, it's quite, it's it's one of the more nasty diseases that you see mm. on the skeleton. Um, and it's almost, it's very diagnostic. So you'll have, you'll have this kind of new bone formation um, and quite destructive erosive lesions 
all over this body, but to the point where like, you know, you'll get one area that's had, it's obviously had, um, they've had the disease because it's like chronic, you know, you know, you, you might um, have it for 20 or 30 years. It'll get to the point where like, you'll have healing and then more destruction, healing, more destruction, and you'll mm. get this just horrible looking bone. Um, and it will be like, there'll be this area that is just totally destroyed. And it'll be like, or it'll be like, you know, five times the size it should be because it's had like new bones form, then it's been destroyed. And it's just yeah. like really, really ugly looking to honestly. Um, and you get these um, specific stellar scars on the skull and stuff like that, um, that are kind of star shaped that you only really get with uh, syphilis. But that's a very um, diagnostic disease. Um, with a lot of diseases, you can't be that specific. You can't be, oh, it's it's more like it's a non-specific infection rather than, yeah. oh, it's, yeah, oh, it's you, definitely this disease. You have to be um, a little bit more vague with yeah, your, yeah. your diagnosis. Um, but scurvy is one you can do. Rickets, obviously, is a classic because of the um, bending of the long bones. Yeah. And you get something called uh, rosemary, um, rosemary uh, ribs. You get these weird ribs that kind of, Misshapen. Rosemary, I've never heard rosemary, of that. I think it's rosemary. Um, it's because the rib ends, like they change shape, and it's more like they they have kind of bulbous. I, I don't exactly know. I think it's a bit rarer, but you get um, it's very weird. It's very weird mm. looking. Um, and then you get um, but yeah, rickets is a obviously bending the long bones is the classic one. Um, um, and yeah, so you can tell with, and then as I say, iron deficiency in is, is 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 again more difficult. Um, but with that, it's kind of looking at, uh, as I explained a bit earlier, like cribble retalia. Um, but this is where the problem comes in because obviously that also produces porosity in the eye orbits, which you could right. scurvy. And there is, um, and obviously you don't even, I mean, they could be comorbidity. They could yeah. exist at the same yeah. time. So it's and likely that they did if it's nutritional deficiency. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you can do you can do multiple things, and then, and then growth disruption is an interesting one to look for. Um, um, again, very complicated, um, but that's kind of looking at a lot of measuring the long bones, basing it on like clinical estimates of um, like how long the long bone should be in in modern populations. So there's obviously a bit of um, there's a bit of interpretation that goes with that, and then that's kind of relating to. Um, you can kind of you can kind of look at um the the dentition with the long bones so for example dentition doesn't really get affected by um um by stresses so for example you know if you're exposed to disease pathology your dentition will just continue to grow no matter what basically it's it's very it, it, i don't know i don't know why that is but it just it just continues to grow regardless of um disruption even if you're like starving it's oh, um, really? it's really it's really weird. So the um, teeth are a priority. Yeah, yeah. But then obviously the the good thing about that is then obviously if someone's starving, they um, divert all their kind of nutrients to kind of um, maintain vital organs, for mm -hmm. example. Um, but it means that you forfeit growth, so yes. growth of the skeleton. But what's a good way if there's a, if there's um basically if the the teeth are kind of determining one age that's um that's kind of older than the than the skeleton you can then be like oh well there's probably growth disruption yeah. you know what i mean yeah uh, it, it's quite complex but um yeah that's no, you can makes, do quite a lot with the skeleton sense, yeah um, so if if a starving body yeah. will prioritize teeth over bone you'll have a discrepancy between yeah the age you think they were yeah based yeah. on the teeth and the yeah. bone or the the growth that they have yeah 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 no that's that's i never would have thought about that that's amazing yeah no is is as i say it's, it, it is interesting it's just Rather complex, and there's like as I say, like the thing is with bioarchaeology, there is a lot of interpretation involved. Mm. Um, there's obviously 
a lot of specific way stuff's done and like, obviously it is um it is it is it is a science in some respects but it i don't know i think some in some respect like standardization does need to be improved in some ways things are done but i think um it is kind of getting there um yeah i think i think agriculture is in a similar sort of position um where i think what has happened is the the models of science from simpler fields maybe have been sort of brought over to these much more complicated systems of you know i mean human nutrition is incredibly complicated exactly animal and plant nutrition is incredibly complicated and then we we're sort of using these relatively simple um tools to try and understand these these systems when in reality they are so much more complicated Mm. um so yeah i thought i do think I don't know how you get out of that um, because at the moment we are left with a large amount of interpretation. You really do have to sort of yeah. think about it. And it's not just like you can see a p-value and go, well, this is definitely the case for this population. Mm. It's like, maybe not. Maybe there's something else going on. Maybe there's a bias in the, in well, there's the all sample. Sorts of, there's just <laughs> there's so all sorts things. of problems, but you wouldn't get anywhere if you just, I mean, you have to do some research. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I, th- I think that, point has come up in every podcast so far yeah yeah. because you know we are trained as sort of scientists to be incredibly critical of our own work of other people's work Mm. of the methods used um but then at the end of the day you do have to just go well we've got to do something yeah there's no point just sitting around going well that's not valid and this isn't reliable and yeah that's not repeatable it's like well Maybe, and we can talk about that, and we can try and improve those things. Mm. But we've got to do something, and something is normally better than nothing. It's quite, um, it's quite an interesting debate that I think isn't really yeah. thought about very much. Um, so you've got the isotope stuff. What other techniques are you going to be, or are you hoping to use throughout your project? Are there any other? So as I said, so there's the isotope part of things, and that's. Um that'll be the incremental as i said on the dentition Mm -hmm. and there'll be some bulk isotopes just on the um some looking at kind of adult women as well right um and that'll just be to determine their general nutritional health before um they obviously died so the last as i said last three to five years of life yeah um and so i'll be doing isotopes and then um as i said the the macroscopic osteological analysis just looking at the the bones for nutritional status and just just general kind of health and diet um not really diet such, I should say. That's from the isotopes, but more nu- nutritional status and kind mm-hmm. of if they've got evidence of nutritional deficiency or chronic nutritional deficiency, I should say, that's kind of um, formed on the bones. Um, and obviously the kind of growth aspect of it as well, growth and um, development or growth. Um, but then that that's the kind of two major things I'm looking at. And then, you know, maybe comparing these two results and looking if there is, you know, for example, if someone wasn't breastfed, have they got evidence of scurvy? Have they got evidence of nutritional deficiency or chronic nutritional deficiency? Obviously, that's quite a basic um, example, but that that kind of thing. Um, and then, um, yeah, I, I hopefully will be looking at some historical data as well that I can maybe work in. It's quite difficult because obviously the historical data is quite limited in the sense that um, often it's just showing, you know, it'll, it'll list the cause of death, Um and it's whether I can like incorporate that into my my information that I've already gathered from yeah. the kind of isotopes and uh, and and osteolo- osteological data. Do you have to be careful to look at that 
last so that it doesn't interfere with your assessment of particularly if you're doing mm. this you know looking at bones and you're sort of subjectively you know obviously obviously you're looking for specific things but it, there yeah. is a judgment there is it important that you don't because you know maybe there's a death record that says rickets yeah and it might be helpful to not know that well th- th- that's the thing i'm the thing is about the, the cause of death it's never going to be scurvy or rickets right um because people aren't dying of starvation really that's not really okay. what's happening people are dying of acute disease that could be linked to nutritional deficiency yes because obviously they're very synergistic you know obviously if you have a poor diet you have a weaker immune system you know it's just um and obviously it works the other way around obviously if you have infection sometimes that can affect your uh, ability to eat or um, your kind of digestive system so it's very it's very difficult to untangle it really um but obviously, yeah, the, the cause of death, it's interesting because I, I probably will end up looking at that last anyway, because in reality, it's if I have time to look at it. Right, yeah. Um, because these are massive um, sources of data and a, a lot of them just, um, particularly the parish records, you know, I'll be, I wanted to look at the kind of St. James parish record. Um, you know, that won't be digitized. That will literally be like... I don't know what sixty thousand like entries into something. I, I into like some like document that exists in the parish church of Saint James. Like now, I, I don't I don't really know where it is, um, or how complete it is, or if it really exists. To be honest with you, but um, yeah. and you have no idea of the accuracy either. Or the accuracy, because the, the the other thing is obviously you you can't really take it at face value because because of the medical knowledge of the time, like how accurate it is. It, what they're saying is the is the cause of death, you know. And a lot of them are very general. If you look at a lot of, there's a few digitized kind of um, burial um, data, uh, yeah, burial data kind of collections. Like for example, I think Leeds General Cemetery's got one, and that ranges a bit more. I think it's like 1850 to like 1960 or whatever. But if you you can kind of search the cause of death and so it's actually quite cool. Um, you can search various different things within it and certain age demographics. Um, but some of them are just listed as it's like really generic stuff, like just fever. Right. Like it's like well, that's not useful to me. Mm. Like, what, what does that mean? Um, and like, obviously, um, you know, there's different um, there's different things that are listed that are quite generic. And you know, obviously, one of the listed characters is just unknown. It's just like, obviously, you know, that's not really useful either. Um, obviously, some of the things are very useful in terms of like, you know, you know, diarrhea or like, um, particularly with infants. Now, I'm talking about that kind of, you know diarrhea or like you know whooping cough stuff that is actually specific was considered a kind of childhood disease right um is is interesting if you know what i mean um but yeah it's interesting that you say that i haven't really given that much thought about how i'm going to like tackle that really the kind of historical side of things because to be honest that is kind of a small initially was a small aspect of it i'm kind of interested in it but I don't think some of my supervisors aren't as interested in that. Oh, really? Um, well, my two supervisors are bioarchaeologists, um, and then my third one in Cardiff is a, hist- a medical historian. Right. Um, so he's obviously interested in that, um, but he has fairly little input into in terms of I, I've only have only had one meeting with him. He's not um, at, at the moment. It, it the, the main kind of data source is the skeletons. Is looking at the isops. Is looking at the um the actual pathology on the skeletons rather than the historical aspect because to be honest with you I mean I'm looking at I'll be looking at the end like 700 skeletons 800 skeletons will I have time to do the historical side mm. of things I, I the historical kind of data side of things anyway yeah obviously I can develop a good kind of background context to it 
talking about the historical um, evidence, but whether I can actually look at the data and have, have time to go through it and, and, you know, look at the causes of death and look at what ages they're dying, like look at um, whether they're dying of this particular infectious disease or that particular, it's, yeah. yeah. And I guess if and it's... Interpreting that is then difficult. Yeah, so. exactly. If it's vague and difficult to interpret, yeah. In, interpret. Interpret, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> if it, yeah, if it's if it's like that then and it takes so much time yeah it's there is a question there of if it's worth the time yeah or not um it's always nice isn't it it's always nice to have more data it's always nice yeah to yeah look at things from different avenues with different methods like mm. you know you've got your sort of molecular stuff and then to have like a document that may or may not back it up is is always interesting is, yeah yeah, you've you've got a limited amount of time to do this, and if you've yeah. got hundreds of skeletons that you need to yeah. go over, it's, and they're uh, the priority because yeah. that is essentially what the main part of the um, the thesis or you know the PhD is, um, and that is my interest. I mean, I'm not a historian. Yeah, uh, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I mean, as much as I'd love to kind of compare the bioarchaeological data to the historical data, which is rarely done, it has been done recently, fairly recently. There's some research that's come out that's kind of done that. Um, but it's not often done, but it would be interesting to basically get all the data possible mm. um, and, and see what you can kind of see from that. Um, better say, you know, if, if I have time, I'll yeah, touch on yeah. the... Uh, you know what you could do? Um, so there's this thing at Reading called the... I'm going to butcher the name of it, but it's like the Undergraduate Research Placement Scheme. Mm. Um, and you apply for it, and I, I did this last year, um, you apply for it and you get an undergraduate student who gets paid to do a project with you. Oh, nice. And then you can basically tell them to do whatever you want. Really? I've never heard of that. It sounds a, great. So <laughs> it might be if you want someone to just sit and like digitize records for you. Yeah, maybe someone's interested in that. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it might work out. We had a guy um, come and help me with some, some stuff and he did like a little experiment. Yeah. But like during that he was just helping me with my project mm. um, and I think I'm going to have one this year as well so I I, I have an idea for an experiment that mm. I think will be interesting but I don't have time to do it so I'm the university is paying an undergraduate student to come and do an experiment for me which helps me it helps them because they're being paid and if you're an undergraduate that's all you really care about <laughs> yeah exactly um, but also it looks great on their CV because they can say they took part in a PhD project mm. so that might be Something yeah, no, I I help. did not know that existed. I'm gonna, I, should, I should probably look into that. I didn't know it existed either. My supervisor just told me about it and was really, like, I, yeah. I, my supervisor was like, I've got a guy. He wants to do it. Do you want to let him do it? Fine. And it it turned out to be reasonably helpful. And yeah, yeah. I'm doing it again. So that that's something to look into if you yeah basically need someone to do some grunt work for you. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Which I'm I mean. sure is not the purpose of the program <laughs> to, if anyone from the university is watching. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, that's good to get experience though for them as well. Definitely, I mean, yeah. It must, yeah. I mean, I and they see as well what research is actually like because I think so yeah, many exactly, people don't yeah. know what, what we do. Yeah. And I, think, I don't really know what I do. <laughs> yeah, I'm on a day-to-day basis, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah. um, read a lot really is what I do yeah. at the moment anyway. Um but yeah, no, that'd be really good, actually. I've n- I've never really thought about that. And um, for me as well, I mean, I just don't have the time to like go through. I mean, I don't, as I say, like, I haven't investigated that much, but I'd like to get the parish registers for this this population I'm looking at, St. James. I don't know if that would even involve going to the actual parish church. I have no idea what it involves. I don't know where they keep them, if I'm being honest. Because mm. um, a lot of them aren't um, 
haven't really been looked at because there's actually 10,000 parish records from like 1500 to like like 18 when like eight, late 1800s sorry early 1800s um before they brought in the kind of general registers and the kind of census records right those are the only things you had to go on mm-hmm. um and um obviously there's a lot there'd be a lot i mean potentially something like 60,000 entries into this this parish records it would just be <laughs> yeah be a nightmare to go through i think but um maybe i can find someone willing mm, to uh, i'm sure there'll be someone that's yeah and uh, presumably I, I i'd imagine with uh something like archaeology bioarchaeology imagine like a bit of work experience is probably really helpful for a for an undergraduate yeah it's, it's really difficult to actually um there's very little um work actually with skeletons specifically mm. i know that's not really with skeletons but on a project maybe that's yeah. with skeletons um that would, I, have, that would be how you sold it i think yeah yeah a skeleton like, i'll show you a skeleton you can come in the lab with thousands of records um no there's very there's very few um opportunities mm. i tried so obviously i did when i was in york i um i was in the lab a fair bit because a lot of the a lot of practical modules with osteoarchaeology um you know you're in there you know sex and the individual age in them whatever doing the pathological stuff um stature you know whatever you're doing um but um you know you get the experience there but outside of that there's no like there's field schools if you want to pay two thousand pounds to go and dig up some you know body somewhere well skeletons mm. i shouldn't say bodies um that suggests it's recent but um skeletons oh, I was gonna say it probably it's probably some blokes buried a cow there <laughs> a while ago and go yeah you paid me two grand to come dig it up yeah well you don't know i mean it seems it's still, it seems slightly unethical to me when i see these like they're always american as well these field <laughs> schools that are like really expensive um and it uh yeah either way um so you can do that but the only the only i mean the only other way is to get into commercial archaeology and mm. hope that you get on a site that's a cemetery, which I was on. Right. And I dug yeah. up quite a few, um, maybe like 30 or 40 graves when I was actually on this Roman site. And that was obviously the best experience you can get. But people might go five, six, seven years working in commercial archaeology. They'll never be put on a cemetery. It, it depends on what they where yeah. they want. Obviously, you can request and be like, can you kind of put me on this? But it also depends on, you know, the work that's available at the time. Like most most archaeological sites will not have any human remains whatsoever because obviously you know it depends if you're near a cemetery on a cemetery yeah or you accidentally find a human body but you know large cemeteries that um you know you, you know 500 600 plus is really rare um, yeah. and then you won't you know you'll only excavate what you need to excavate you know you'll only you won't you're not going to excavate you know a full london cemetery of sixty thousand individuals if you don't need to so you'll only excavate the area where the infrastructure is coming in. Yeah, well, you that's the I mean? thing. This, this yeah. work is only possible because of yeah. infrastructure. And, yeah, projects. and this work's only possible because of that. And yeah. That's why there's so much cemetery stuff and so many populations coming out the ground at the moment um, because of that. Otherwise, it, it would be a lot It would be a lot slower. There'd still be stuff from infrastructure, but um, not to the same degree. Yeah. But yeah. And it's fascinating that that's that an infrastructure an infrastructure project could create this sort of boom of yeah you know potential for archaeological inquiry yeah it's it's it's, because someone's building a train (laughs) i know exactly it's um it's it's good though it's great for bioarchaeology because um there's obviously these populations that are coming out the ground obviously um the the thing is with bioarchaeology a lot of them aren't ever analyzed so what will happen is there might be some kind of initial um analysis done at a basic level so they might basically look over the bones you know that age this sex this they'll do some demographic stuff 
they won't do anything in depth um and then they'll be reburied because um that's that's part of the like remit of a lot of projects well they have to legally be reburied i think i'm not right. exactly okay. sure about the laws but um they have to be reburied at some point so even the i think ten, i'm not sure how it works with universities and museums but i think you know at some point they technically have to be reburied i think oh, really? i don't know if they have some i don't know if it's slightly different with museums or universities but most 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 um excavated or exhumed um human remains are reburied um straight away in quite a lot of cases um especially if they're more recent um obviously there's right. there's a law where i think like if it's within limited memory they have to be re reburied straight away you're not allowed to analyze them yeah. so i think it's it would be so I think it's the hundred. I think it's a hundred years or something like that. So it'd be like nineteen twenty-two. Now you couldn't go anything nineteen twenty-two onwards. You'd have yeah. to rebury it straight away, for yeah. example. Um, and obviously, there's all sorts of things with like human tissue problems as well. Because obviously, if you're going to get, you're potentially going to get hair, and you're potentially going to get tissue, depending on the preservation of the actual the preservation environment. You know, the burial environment. Um, so are they worried about th diseases? That's an interesting question. There's um. There's um. Yeah, it's very interesting with diseases because there was um there's actually a really famous case of um it was one of the first ever um excavations of um an actual um industrial population it was like in the 1980s and it was um this church and it was actually the vault of a church Spitalfields in London um Christchurch Spitalfields I think it was that in, rings a bell in London really famous case because essentially they they were like oh we need to we need to exhume this vault and there's about a thousand burials all in this one church under the under the in the church vault um and um they were worried that because of the preservation environment because of the burial environment itself there might be you know there might be some individuals that would potentially have stuff like smallpox mm. that was obviously eradicated um or only 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 infectious disease to ever be eradicated completely, isn't yeah. it, I think. Yeah. But um they're getting there with polio. Yeah, but, they're getting there with yeah. polio. But I think um essentially they were worried that there might be, you know, essentially you could have evidence you could have this bacterial infection. And obviously like I doubt um I doubt it would still be alive. I don't really I, I don't know that much about viruses or bacteria, if I'm being honest. Um but there's still that problem of like if you've got soft tissue preservation you know, that could harbour disease, all sorts. You, you don't yeah. know what people have died of, really. Um, mm. And especially if there's not a record of what they yeah. died of. That's another problem. But um, you, yeah, Have you ever seen House? Have you seen what? House, the TV show House with Hugh no. Laurie. There's an, there's an episode where they have basically that as a plot line. Oh, really? It's an amazing episode. I've no idea whether or not it would be, you know, possible in the real mm. world, but something like there's these people diving and they find like a... Shunk, uh, sunken ship mm. and there's a jar with um the scabs that they would use to inoculate people for smallpox That's and they like break it open and it gets in a cut or something and then they have to work out if she's got small it's actually you should watch it because it's it yeah, is this sort of yeah bioarchaeology with the because they're reading the captain's log to try yeah, and figure yeah, out yeah, what yeah. the disease was yeah it's yeah so it's I reckon they heard the Spitalfield story yeah and then were like it's um, let's make a TV show it's out of interesting this. because that's an interesting case because people they had to go in with full biohazard suits. Mm. I think that's that's what what happened in the end. And um, there was I hope also, they filmed that because that would look amazing. That would have been like, cool. Opening yeah. church vaults. There was and... also like this whole worry of like oh like health in general because it was so like it was so dusty down there. I think there was even a thing about 
I think people did actually suffer some like chronic respiratory. Oh, disease. really? I think it was a thing about. I, I don't know if I was making that up, but I swear I read something about that that came out of it later. Um, that was certainly the worry at the time that there was going to be problems with um, kind of chronic respiratory yeah. because of the kind of nature of the environment they're working in. You know, wooden. Um, you know, there's particles all o- in the air, all over the place. Um, you know, you're talking about loads of coffins, lo- loads of collapsed coffins because they all stacked on top of each other. Oh, really? Because it was so like. You know, it's about a thousand, in, I think maybe over a thousand individuals all in this one vault. Just stacked they just up. Ch- ch- you know, like I think it got warehouse. to a point where, yeah, it's like a warehouse of bodies, really. I think they just. That is uh, wild. I think they just eventually, like, I think they must have started just, like, putting just putting bodies. I, initially, I think it was more like, you know, you do family stacked burials. But I think it got to the point where they must have just been putting in you know you know they're putting in um, coffins where they could really mm. and they were obviously over capacity by some significance and that's probably why it was shut down in the first place but <laughs> um yeah no it is interesting i would have i would have loved to be in on something like that yeah that, that would have been so really cool. cool especially because they they had a lot of the coffin plates so some of the individuals are identified as as people which is really interesting wow yeah and that's another side of thing that that's something that i'm quite interested in it's called like um osteobiographies it, it's kind of right. like um so you have the human remains and you have information on the actual person themselves. Yeah. Some kind of historical record. You know exactly who they were. Yeah. You know what they died of. Um, so I, I think... So that's what they did with um, the king, Richard, Richard, king, Richard, Richard III. Yeah. 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 So obviously you know about Richard III. You find the body. It's interesting. He has scoliosis. Oh, yeah. You know, all that kind of thing. It's, um, yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting way of doing things. Obviously extremely rare. And it's, it's, it's a one-off case usually. You're not going to be able to go, oh, we've got 50 individuals and we know everything about these 50 individuals mm. historically and also now we've got their skeletons. Yeah. That's, that's just not going to happen. But I mean, You will um, be able to do that in the future because everyone puts their whole lives on the internet. Yeah, so exactly. You'll like, you you know, know everything. I'll know everything. So I'll just be... Uh, <laughs> but then all the fun will be gone because yeah. you won't be able to interpret and guess... Well, not guess things, but interpret things <laughs> in certain ways. Um, but, um, Sometimes it is a guess. Yeah. Let's be honest. Yeah, Sometimes. Be honest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there's guessing, but you can't you can't put so much of the guesswork in there. You no, gotta no. you gotta back it up with. But sometimes it is helpful to have a guess and then to go, okay, I'm going to test this properly. Yeah, yeah. It's nice to have a sort of hunch or a gut feeling or, yeah, a, or yeah. a guess or whatever. Yeah. Um, I, I think a lot of people don't realise that that's how a lot of science moves forward. Sometimes yeah. is you sort of yeah, have yeah. a crazy idea. You know, well, I'll test it properly like a scientist, and turns out the guess wasn't so crazy. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, otherwise, nothing would happen. Mm. If you were just going around going, oh, I'm going to do exactly the same as this person's done, <laughs> like, 100 years ago, it would just be literally just people repeating the exact same yeah. thing. Um, you got to kind of expand it a bit. And that's why I think, like, my, my to me anyway, my study is interesting because it's, it's combining um, the ostological um, side of things, the kind of traditional kind of macroscopic, just looking at the human remains with the chemical side, which is really kind of rare, looking at the isotopes as well, mm. um, in conjunction. Um, it's it's rarely done, and I think there's there's one recent paper that's looked at it, and I think that might be more or less it. There's there's maybe two that have ever ever looked at it, because it, it's just mainly because it's quite expensive to do. Isotopes right. have always been quite expensive, okay. especially incremental. So, you know, imagine, you know, you've got 20 increments. That's 20 samples, like, that's just one person. Mm. You've got to, to get a good sample size. You, you might want, you know, 40, 50. Um, and then that's what, 50, 20 times 50. And then it's like each one of those samples costs however much. And it's yeah. just like, it's, it's obviously expensive work, to, particularly to do incremental stuff with, with the teeth. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not it's not been done much. Um, but some interesting, some interesting work came out of it recently that looked at 
individuals that had quite severe chronic um, infection. So, so one looked at um, this paper recently looked at um, tuberculosis. Um, well, it looked it looked at like pathologies in general, but one of these individuals had tuberculosis, and it was interesting that they had really high uh, nitrogen levels as nitrogen isotope ratio uh, nitrogen isotope ratios, um, which, as I was saying earlier, is associated with stress or um so it's interesting that you can potentially see that mm. um i'd be interested to see to see what i find really especially with like looking at scurvy i mean it's not going to be as simple as i see um as i see you know no breastfeeding then it's going to be oh they had scurvy it's not gonna be as simple as that obviously yeah. but it's like um i'd be interested to see what i can i can find out about diet you know health um mm. and then you know a bit of stress maybe if i can see that as well would be interesting um yeah no it'd be, it'd be interesting to follow your research actually because like you say it's going to be difficult to find clear associations yeah because very, very it's difficult, difficult to do that <laughs> with nutrition in people that are alive yeah exactly it's yeah very di- like that's why things check all the recommendations change so much because mm. the effect sizes are tiny yeah and there's no such thing as a controlled diet you can't compare to yeah. a control group because people eat what they want to eat to do that on people that have been mm. dead for a couple you're, hundred years the, the thing is you're making a lot of assumptions mm. that is that the problem it comes down to you can't be like you don't know what they were specifically eating because all you've got is the nitrogen and carbon isotope ratios and all that says that's a measure of protein that is literally what that is a measure of yeah um so you know and obviously you know you can go into different kind of proteins um to a certain degree and, and can you really well, no, no, not sorry, not different proteins. I mean, sorry, I mean different sources of protein. I should say, like as I yeah, said, no, like that... marine, um, terrestrial. So they ha- they have different effects on the, yeah. the ratios. The yeah, they have a slightly ratios. different effect. And then, as I said earlier, C three and C four. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Which are based... two categorizations of plant. Yeah, two categorizations of plant. Um, um, and I basically, I think... which I still don't understand. I should know that. Yeah, the thing is, I don't understand it either, and it's always coming. I know it that is... <laughs> potatoes are C three. I think potatoes are C three. Yeah, I always say that. C three. Actually... No, I know why potatoes are C three because in the Irish famine, which is eighteen um, forties, I think, um, it's famous because you can actually see the change from oh. C three to C four in our in bioarchological evidence because um, essentially, obviously, C three potato. The relief food was maize imported right. from America, which and is, is C4. C4. Okay, and th- there's a significant shift from a lower to higher nitrogen isotope ah, ratio. That's really um, interesting. In in there's there's this famous sample of like this the Kilkenny um, um, Irish famine victims, which were exhumed. I don't know, like two thousands, early two thousands. But they are um, they they were from a workhouse um, that lived during the famine. Right. Um, and, but there's some like really inf- interesting information about individuals within that that you can actually you can pinpoint um you know you actually know like what they were kind of eating before the famine um and then kind of during and then kind of after mm. and then you can actually see that kind of shift um oh, that's amazing it's really it's, re- it's really it's really complex stuff but um it's really interesting yeah yeah also how fortunate is it is it that the two types of photosynthesis produce these two different isotope ratios yeah but that didn't need to happen but it does but it and did. that means that we can find out what people ate yeah no it, it is it is, it is it is it is useful um <laughs> no it's, it's yeah no it's weird how like stuff works isn't it 
that's, that's the thing. Like, I, th- um, I think that's our job. Yeah, yeah. To uh, to be like, isn't it weird? Yeah. How everything it's works. Weird how this works perfectly. Let's try and figure it out. But then sometimes, as much as sometimes it works perfectly, a lot of the time it does not work mm, perfectly. Yeah. Um, and it and goes against so you noisy. massively. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and that's definitely the case with isotope ratios because, as I say, you can only say so much about something, and even like you can't even really say. I can't even like. I'm still saying I think this is breastfeeding, mm. but it could be a combination of multiple things. Because even you know when I'm looking at my increments, say that's you know say I've got an increment and it represents four months, you know that's still an average yeah. of their diet over four months. Yeah, they could have they could have had you know they could have experienced um, severe stress for ten days. Yeah, within that, and that would just not appear because it wouldn't affect the average because of the overriding. Um, um, dietary application or something else. Yeah. I don't know. So it's, it's 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 quite complicated to interpret because you you never know really what's happening in that four months. You get the overriding effect of that four months, I suppose, the yeah. dietary effect or or stress effect. Yeah. Um. So everything's just sort of smoothed out. Yeah. Because the the variation, yeah, temporal variation is yeah collapsed. You do well. You do actually get flat line profiles, which is mm. a problem. Um, where you just get these flat line profiles and you don't get the expected breastfeeding increase right. um, um, or the breastfeeding curve, as it's called, where you get the breastfeeding increase in nitrogen isotope ratio and then it kind of goes down when you're being weaned yeah. um, as you're coming off the breast milk. But um, like sometimes it's just all over the place. It's like literally, um, and that could be due, due to several several different reasons, mm. but um, it's usually and that's why these because... big samples are so good. Yeah. Because you can find a signal within all that noise yeah well the good samples are good because you can then compare different profiles so Mm -hmm. you know i've got i've i've got one individual um that i think might be breastfed but in reality by itself i don't know so what i want to do is i want to see what kind of profiles are popping up and sometimes a kind of pattern develops and there might be different um different profiles and that might you might be like oh that's probably definitely breastfeeding we've got we've got 20 individuals that are looking like that um but even then like that nitrogen isotope ratio could be influenced by anything. Like it could still be influenced by stress. Um, it's still an average. So, but obviously, it's it's, it's down to interpretation. Yeah, end, I suppose. Yeah, that's. I think that's the skill. Yeah, is yeah. the interpretation. That yeah, is yeah. what you're developing during your project is the ability to look at data and interpret it, and acknowledge that yes, we we have to make a bunch of assumptions, but this is why we've made them. This is why we think they're sensible. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than just going, oh, well, it's all pointless because we yeah. have to interpret everything. Because because in reality, what I'll probably do is obviously I'm I'm going in to look at the diet, um, but obviously as a kind of um, I'm also going to have to look at the kind of stress as well, um, differential diagnosis. I'm going to have to make a differential diagnosis essentially about certain things and be like, you know, obviously this could be breastfeeding, but you also got to remember that stress exists, um, different dietary consumption exists. Um, and with the culture, the interesting thing, I haven't really even gone into it much about the, cult- uh, sorry, industrial revolution is we see a lot of different cultural feeding practices. Right. Okay. So, um, so, um, initially, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of poorer people breastfed because they were poor. They didn't have, um, any other means to feed their children. Really. It was the most logical thing to do. Um, but a lot of higher social status women, um, obviously outsource their breastfeeding to wet nurses. Right. Yeah. Practice. Um, and the problem with that is obviously for the health of the infant is that obviously, you know, you're, you're not getting the specific breast milk designed for that mm-hmm. child. 
Um, it doesn't have the specific antibodies um, that provides. Obviously, it does to a certain degree have still some kind of kind of passive immunity yeah. against infectious disease, but it's not it's not to the same degree as um, a specific maternal milk to that child. And then also, you don't get the most important part, which is the kind of colostrum, which is the initial breast milk, mm-hmm. which is the is the breast milk that's really high in nutrients um, and that initial kind of dose of antibodies. Um, and obviously, there's also the problem is like how many children is that wet nurse feeding at the same time it's obviously kind of competition for resources between children yeah. theoretically um and then kind of later on um you also have the the kind of same where um lower social status women didn't breastfeed as often because they were employed you know they were employed in factories um um at the kind of you know when it gets to kind of 1750 to 1850 um a lot more women start to be employed because they didn't really have a choice out of poverty they had to work because um, they didn't have enough money to survive. And in that case, you get a lot of women that start to feed kind of other sources of food, like kind of like um, you get condensed milk or um, you even get dry f- dry food feeding from quite an early age, mm. which is obviously not particularly healthy. You get this thing called PAP, um, which is a mix of flour and breadcrumbs mixed with water. Ooh. Not nutritious at all. <laughs> um, but obviously, you know, that's not particularly healthy for the child. Um but then you also get, you even get stuff like, um, for example, for some reason, there was this, I don't know if it's based in religion, but the actual colostrum was viewed as like unhealthy for the child. Oh, really? Which obviously is the complete opposite mm. because of the weird, because it's a kind of weird, not weird, but it's a it's a yellow, it's a lot thicker than normal yeah. breast milk. It's like a yellowy kind of color. Um, and it was actually um, viewed as, as detrimental to the health of the child um, by some people. Um and they, they obviously would actually essentially starve the child of that breast milk initially mm. and only start breastfeeding a few days later when they had um, um, the, the kind of normal traditional kind of breast milk um, that came after after um, the initial colostrum. Um, and they used to like feed them like milk and uh, they used to feed them like honey and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's weird. And there's also obviously cow's milk as well. There's like all sorts of... Um, like milk substitutes or breast milk substitutes, I should say, that were possibly being um, fed to children during this period. And it's when you start seeing um, people trying to capitalize on, on that as well. So you don't really, before this, there's no like really alternative milk apart from cow's milk. But you start seeing condensed milk. Mm. You can't you start seeing things that, are, you know, targeted towards um, feeding children from a young age. But in reality, they're not fortified at all. They, they haven't got the the correct nutritional yeah. um contents um and they're often like really bad like so like cow's milk for example um like is associated with like feeding um children cow's milk is associated with like i think like rectal bleeding associated with eye oh, deficiency wow. anemia because yeah. it causes they can't digest it properly mm. um and and another problem with cow's milk in the kind of industrial period is is the problem of tuberculosis a lot of these um, a lot of these cows were kept in really unhygienic conditions. And I think I think a survey in... This is on the top of my head. I was actually just reading this. Um, a survey in 1900 found that 10% of milk contained tuberculosis. Oh, that's good. Cow, of cow's milk contained um, bovine tuberculosis. Mm. And I was like, that's just... Uh, yeah. So obviously there's that as well. So you don't... <laughs> there's all sorts of, of problems with not just breastfeeding for yeah. six months or... or, or um, and then complementary feeding as well for a longer period of time. Um, but it's, it's interesting because you, you still get that today. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of societies that actually 
um, modern uh, populations that refuse to breastfeed initially, I think. I think it's, it's colostrum, for example, is, is viewed negatively in some in some communities. I'm not sure if it's it's more um, like kind of poorer. Mm. Obviously, we're talking about poorer, maybe industrial, maybe like even kind of pre-industrial, really yeah. kind of uh, societies. But it is it is viewed in a negative light for some reason. I wonder um, where that comes from. That's I so don't strange. know. I don't know if it is the fact that you know if you see something that's not it's not the same as the um same as 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 the kind of milk that comes afterwards um and that you're maybe used to seeing other people uh breastfeed mm. um, their children i i don't know it is an interesting i honestly have no idea but um i think it must be steeped in a bit of religion as well religious yeah. region religious reasons as well i don't know um just you know beliefs that are passed on yeah i'm sure there are mouth. complicated mm. and different reasons for, for yeah that. it just seems so alien i guess to yeah to yeah. us um i don't i i can't get my head around why why anyone could believe that something you produce mm. would be bad like i think i i've sure i've read this ages ago but i think in terms of the industrial revolution period that i'm looking at i think it was based around religious reason i think there was a okay there was a conception that the milk um was almost like evil it was sort of like something related mm. to like the devil and stuff like that but like I, I don't know if it was um and that's why they practice these kind of purges where they gave the the child like honey initially because they were getting ra- rid of all the bad stuff i think i think it's the mm. idea they were getting rid of the bad stuff which was the colostrum yeah and then feeding their child like the the, the good milk but i don't really know that much about it yeah no it's, but, it's um, fascinating and sort of slightly tragic at the same time yeah um and obviously that probably caused the premature death of a lot of children yeah. which is very sad yeah um there's also obviously all sorts of other yeah issues but mm. okay so that's all very interesting and i hope it all goes to plan yeah. um it won't i can tell no, you that no, now no, but no, um, it already isn't so <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it, uh, it's a good it's a good start i think um these things projects sort of have a life, life of their own and you yeah. end up coming across things that are interesting going oh i really want to look at this and then you yeah. veer off completely um but it's still interesting and useful and good yeah, to, yeah. to do that and i think every every phd student has a story of you know thinking they were going to do one thing and then end up doing something similar Sim- but yeah. slightly different or sometimes very different um you know depending on on how everything goes and the things that pop out during your interpretations mm. um so it's probably slightly premature to ask you, but but do you have any idea of what you'll do, you know, after after this? Do you ha- have you thought about that at all? I know it's a horrible question. Yeah, yeah. Um, the people like us that have stayed in education <laughs> get constantly. Well, what are you gonna? What are you really gonna do? Yeah, it's got a scary prospect. Yeah. Isn't it, really? Um, I, I I've got a few ideas. Um, so as I said, I worked for a commercial archaeology unit. Um, before I came here, um, and they do hire um professional osteoarchaeologists that essentially um just analyze all the skeletal material that the commercial digs might um exhume um and then they'll write like whatever reports they need to write for all the um um for the clients they're working for essentially mm-hmm. um and they'll essentially just analyze the skeletons essentially what I, i'd be doing now really in yeah. this um but you know more broadly focused as in they'll just you know they'll look at you know like they'll look at everything on the skeleton yes yeah um and you know, sometimes they do a bit of isotope, or they'll be do a bit of radiocarbon dating, or something like that. But it's 
it's not that common. It's, it's more just purely the kind of ostological um, analysis. Um, and that's that's a pretty good job. I'd, I'd quite be happy to do that, to be honest with you. Um, but the other side of things, I would be quite interested to do maybe a postdoc. I mean, that seems like the obvious progression often, yeah. isn't it? But um, um, as I said before, I was looking at um, McMaster initially. For, I actually applied to McMaster to do a PhD as well mm. um, in Canada, um, which is next to Toronto. I'm not sure if people know where McMaster is. But, um, <laughs> I don't. It's, uh, yeah, it's near Toronto um, in Canada. Um, and I actually, I withdrew that application in the end, um, but I did get through to, like I think, one of the final stages. But I was just like, I don't really, during COVID, I, I was too like, I didn't know whether I'd just be stuck in Canada. Mm, yeah. You know what I mean? It obviously was interesting, but I wouldn't want to be stuck in Canada by myself with no other people to re- that I really knew. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then another aspect of that was that Reading was just perfect for the kind of populations and the, um, there's the funding, the good funding that I could get. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd probably do, um, I'd probably do a postdoc in another country if mm-hmm. I could. Um I've got my kind of eye on McMaster. I mean, the, the professor there that I was talking to, she's like, um, when I like withdrew, she was like, oh, if you want to do a postdoc, you can come here. And she sent me the link to like the postdoc. Oh, really? And I was like, That'd a bit premature. But, um, but yeah, no, she was, um, she's really nice. But I think, um, yeah, something like that, postdoc research, lecture role. It's, it's quite hard because there's no like, obviously the obvious one is postdoc, but you know, some people go straight into lecturing or they do yeah. this. And it's, it's, I suppose it's what, it's what pops up at the time. Yeah um really for me um but there's a few things that i could possibly do i think that's Um, good good to have a couple of options yeah nice to um yeah to have thought about it a little bit i guess as well yeah be nice to keep in touch with that um that lady in canada yeah no no i see her i see the conferences sometimes yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, she's like a very very big in the bioarchaeology um so yeah she's always it's always useful to know people isn't it yeah yeah that's true Um, Cool. No, that was that was great. I think we should probably wrap it up now. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how long we've been talking for because my laptop's yeah gone off. But um, that was really interesting, and maybe you know in a couple of years we could do it again. And yeah, yeah. I'll come up with some actual results. Yeah, yeah. No, that'd be really <laughs> really cool. Um, no, that was great. Thanks yeah, so much for doing no worries, it. Um, yeah. it's Jack Jack Eggington Eggington. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I knew. It, yeah, I didn't want to get it wrong. I knew it was that, but I didn't want to get yeah. it wrong. Jack Eggington, uh, first year PhD student at. at reading yeah. and um yeah it was great to talk to you nice to meet you and um yeah nice to meet you too best of luck with uh all of your work yeah and Thank uh you. thanks for watching if you're watching thanks for listening if you're listening i always point at the microphone even though they can't yeah. see me if they're <laughs> listening um and we'll be back with the next episode shortly i think it's going to be with a um a psychologist I don't know actually what you describe her as, but basically she does research on plant-based alternatives to animal products. That's interesting. So I've, I read her papers about um, plant-based eggs and they're really? doing like consumer surveys and stuff. That's so, a big thing at the moment as well. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, that should be quite interesting. Um, she's uh, actually finished. It'd be nice to go from someone who's uh, just yeah, started yeah. to someone who's yeah. just finished or she's very nearly finished. Um so uh yeah that'd be a, a nice little juxtaposition yeah yeah um, <laughs> so yeah if you're if you're interested um in seeing that please subscribe to the channel on the youtubes um or subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts spotify apple Podcasts. we're on them all uh, and thanks for listening and thank you so much for being a great guest yeah thank you very much see you later peace